Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Let's give it up for the biggest show these guys have ever done. The gentleman from Pod Save America. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. guys. Oh. I mean, this is right. it's, it's the biggest show yet. It's the biggest show for now. <laughs> It's the first show. It's the only show. See you at Madison Square Garden, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how's everyone feeling? Yeah! All right. Better than I thought. Um, thank you to BAM and to WNYC for having us. Yes. Um, we have some very special... Thank you for coming. We have some special guests tonight. Uh, the mayor of New York is here, Bill de Blasio. Um, from CBS News in the Atlantic, Alex Wagner is here. And, of course, my two co-hosts and co-founders of Crooked Media, John Lovett and Tommy Vitor are here. Yeah. Mostly John Lovett. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Um, so, it has now been three weeks to the day since Donald Trump was inaugurated, the 45th President of the United States. 205 to go. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like a lifetime. Uh, I wanted to start tonight by, I mean, there has been a lot of news drama, crap thrown at us over the last three weeks. And I was hoping maybe we could try to separate out what is silly, inconsequential, and what really matters in terms of what Trump has done over these three weeks. Can we do that in like 10, 15 minutes? Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> love it. Let's start with uh, Trump's relationships to our institutions, to the presidency, yeah. to the judiciary, to the media. Um, what, what has alarmed you most in the last few weeks? <laughs> this is uh, sort of a softball, you know? So, I think it's like Donald Trump winning the election. <laughs> Honestly, it threw me for a fucking loop. <laughs> and it's led to a lot. I, uh, but, but no, seriously, uh, I think the single scariest moment has been his threats to the, ju- the, to the judiciary. I think that is the, that to me is like our bright red line um, you know, we can handle his calling CNN fake news. Like, CNN can take it. We can also kind of like it a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's not fair, but it's, it's okay. Hey, Brian Stelter. <laughs> Where are you, Brian? Brian. Yeah. <laughs> He's somewhere out there. And Brian, you know how I feel about you. I can't see you, but... You know. We do, we do. Oh, hey! <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I would say that uh, after the executive order was first um, uh, stayed uh, and, you know, Donald Trump took to Twitter and said so-called judge and I can't remember the rest of it um, because there have been so many between now and then. Um, but I think that was, the thing, that, was, that was very scary, especially, you know, I went to um, LAX uh, to take some selfies at a protest. And, <laughs> um, and while I was there, I happened to see what was going on. 
And uh, it, was, it was incredibly inspiring, and it was incredibly moving to see these lawyers and these translators and people coming out of the woodwork and supporting um, people that were just there to pick up their family members who had been detained or, or deported or couldn't get any information. They didn't know what was going on. Um, and w- standing there, you know, you could see the chaos of what happened after that order, and you see lawyers desperate to try to get information. And in those early days, when it seemed as though Homeland Security wasn't going to obey uh, the courts at the request of the president, um, and, when, and now in hindsight we know that many people were treated incredibly unfairly and in violation of court orders during that time, I mean, that to me is the single scariest thing that Donald Trump can do because um, we really are reliant on norms and institutions to enforce these judicial orders. And uh, without that, you know, we are uh, toast. Yeah. So that's frightening. I mean, I was actually, and you were saying this, I was... Uh, heartened by the fact that he had sent that tweet last night, said, see you in court, court, yes. you know? Um, <laughs> said that. But at least it means that he is yes. seeing right. the court as legitimate. Yeah, it's right? a, see you in court is, a, he sees it as a reality show drama moment, but at least he recognizes that the court exists and will have some kind of dramatic say in the matter, right? If, you know, it's better to say, I don't, you know, that, anyway. That's Where do you think the EO could end up, Tom? I mean, it seems unclear whether they're going to try to fight this thing or they'll completely rewrite it and fix all the obvious fuck-ups they made. I try not to swear as much. Why? Because um, my girlfriend's dad yelled at me for swearing. Um, <laughs> didn't yell. He was very nice. But um, Brian Stelter's here. I know Brian Stelter's here. So <laughs> it's unclear if they're going to fight this thing or they're going to try to get a do-over, you know? But either way, I mean, I think the damage is done in terms of, like, the way we're viewed abroad. I think the damage is done to Trump in terms of people across the country thinking these people are woefully incompetent, and the damage is done to the rest of the government realizing that, like, guess what? The days of working together and trying to do things in a smart, reasonable, lawful way may be over, and Steve Bannon and his buddies are going to go into their little cave and, like, throw out these things. Yeah, I do think the one thing we have to be prepared for is, um, even though he lost in court yesterday uh, because they said that the stay couldn't, you know, they they weren't going to have the ban happen, continue while they were uh, appealing this. Um, The Trump administration can rewrite the executive order uh, in a way that is possibly constitutional in accordance with the law. And the president does have a huge amount of power to determine who is allowed in this country and who isn't. And so we've had this little victory so far, but they could get, I mean, they handled this, whether you were for the ban or not, they handled it so incompetently. Nobody here is for the ban. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those of you so, out there somewhere. So <laughs> Look, Sean Spicer listens to the pod. Sean Spicer, Straight yeah. Friend of the pod. Well, let's not go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we should be aware of that. Uh, it also seems like Donald Trump isn't really uh, too psyched about the job right now. It seems like uh, Politico headline today was that he's, it's much harder than he thought it was going to be. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he saw the American president, which is what gave him the idea. He's like, oh, I'll, I'll meet somebody. Just tweeting in his just just <laughs> tweeting in his bathrobe. Yeah, he's just wandering around the White House in a in a bathrobe, looking at the pictures, being like, I don't I don't know who that is. <laughs> Doesn't seem like he's getting prepped for the foreign leader calls either, Tom. No, I mean, <laughs> on the foreign policy side, um, you know, it, I I hate how reflexively opposed to everything he does we are, but there's nothing I've seen that's given me any confidence. Like, first of all, <laughs> you need good people to help you manage all these things, right? Because as, as biggest set of issues you have when you come in, something happens the next day, and you need a structure and a team to help you manage these things. And then we read today that despite denying that um, he had mentioned sanctions relief to the Russian ambassador, nine sources, nine sources say that General Flynn was negotiating sanctions relief to the Russian ambassador. Big no-no. Yeah, against the law. uh, Now, that law has never been tested. It's never been enforced, but, But, you know, regardless... (laughs) 
regardless, if you're not smart enough to know you shouldn't break the law, A, and not smart enough to know that you're called to the Russian ambassador, you're probably not the only guy on the line. Um, we have a problem. So in terms of his team... <laughs> if Mike Flynn was fired, do you think we'd be like 5% safer? No. I mean, who, who comes next, right? I mean, That's who true. lost The Apprentice season three, right? It's, like, it's never clear... <laughs> Like, it's like, here me- comes Meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would fucking take him. <laughs> but you know, at the same time, you have Steve Bannon, like, rooting around in there like a little evil truffle pig down in the NFC. <laughs> and he's making shots. And that just sort of, like, codifies politics as at the cornerstone of national security decision-making. And I sat in a million uh, meetings in the Situation Room, and I literally saw Dennis McDonough, like, just dress down someone who dared to mention an, an election in that room. Like, that doesn't come up. But he's putting Bannon in there, and he's saying the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the intel guys, you can show up when needed. And that's a scary thing. And I think, you know, they're making, they're pissing off the Australians for no reason. They're pissing off the entire Muslim world. It's like, you know, there's a couple ways you can deal with terrorists, and that's their, seemingly their sole focus. And one is we can do things on our own, like you saw we try to do in Yemen, and that requires permission and, um, and, you know, it requires a president that's going to really go over the fine details of an operation and not, like, approve it at dinner with Ivanka and Jared and the gang. And that apparently is what's happening. I don't think Ivanka was there. Just want to... No yeah. fake news. I keep, yeah, I keep maligning... Sorry, Jared and the gang. But, um, <laughs> well, as long as Jared is there, a 36-year-old guy who's never done a fucking thing in his life. <laughs> he did... I mean, he did get that... Look, <laughs> it's not easy to get into Harvard... Unless your dad says, I'll give you guys $2 million after my son gets in. <laughs> and then, I mean... Yeah, it does. I hear you. Um, <laughs> so not a lot of faith in the foreign policy advisor. No, and it's like... He's going to do what, Middle East... Jared Kushner's going to do Middle East peace. He's like... Right. He, re- foreign, he read the New Republic once. What foreign policy action has he taken that's worried you the most? I mean, my concern is you can't kill your way out of a terrorism problem. You cannot... You cannot take enough drone strikes. You cannot undertake enough military operations. There's going to be a threat. And, and you're going to need to work with partners. And they're going to need to have the political capital in places where um, we're not necessarily well-liked to work with us and, and partner with us. And by pissing off the entire populations of those places, it's making that harder. Um, he's also, I think, I believe, giving ISIS, they're literally cheerleading, they're calling it the blessed ban, uh, he's helping them recruit. And... That's not the sole reason people join these groups. We don't really know that. It's probably a case-by-case thing. But there's, there's no security reason why this ban makes sense, right? Refugee vetting is the longest, most onerous process we have in terms of letting people into this country. And he seized on this because it's politically advantageous. And the fact that he won't let that go uh, and it's doing such damage to our reputation around the world is really unnerving to me. Okay, well, that's good. Well, should we... I'm going to be the <laughs> bum you out guy. <laughs> Love oh. a good joke. Should we get to good news on domestic policy? Oh, my... I just... So I have some, I have some, I have some more hopeful news. Oh, I good. I think that the fight to save the Affordable Care Act is going to be incredibly difficult, but is one that we can win. I agree. Um, yeah. And I think... One that we're already winning, in a way. I think the one that we're already winning, in a way. So... I think the trouble that Trump is going to face on domestic policy is there was a part of his campaign, a big part of his campaign, that was economically populist in a way that the Republican Party is not. And so Paul Ryan's economic agenda, his domestic policy agenda, is lots of tax cuts and lots of cuts to just about every government program there is. And that's what most of the Republican Party in Congress wants. 
Trump has promised things like he's not going to cut Medicare, he's not going to cut Medicaid, he said that he wants to have health care for everyone. And now, look, if the Republican Party's message was, and Trump's message was, it is not the role of the federal government to be involved in providing health care for the American people, then they could say that, they have the votes, they could push repeal through, and that's it. But that's not their message now. No. Right. And their like, message now is, <laughs> we want everyone to have health care. We want people to have more affordable health care. We want everyone to have access to health care. We don't want a bunch of people to lose their insurance. Right. It is nearly impossible to achieve that goal by repealing the Affordable Care Act and not replacing it with something remarkably similar. Yeah, you see, like, there's, like, all these health care experts that are now trying to figure out this Republican replacement. It's like they go into, like, the health care woods, and they're very excited, and they got their rucksacks, and they're just, like, crawling out the other side and just leave it. <laughs> just leave it alone. <laughs> they're out of Lunabars. Right, right, they're miserable. Frank Luntz, survivor of a glitter <laughs> attack. Uh, uh, is like, call it repair now. For love of God, don't repeal it. Don't like, repair it. No, but the best thing was that Jason, Jason Chaffetz, Congressman, where is he from? Utah. 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 Just, he's the worst. Remember, remember, he, remember, he, remember he couldn't look his daughter in the face after yeah. the, uh, the, the Access Hollywood tape came out? And so yeah. he like, unendorsed He hasn't Trump. seen her since. There, there, <laughs> there is no member of Congress who has, has more completely abdicated his duty uh, than that guy. Because he's on the Oversight Committee, and he's supposed to investigate people when they, like, lie constantly or use their, use their office to sell goods for their daughter, things like that. And he's sort of not really doing much yet. But um, he had like 600 people at the town hall last night chanting at him more to, you guys, to, to protect ACA. You guys. And that's hopeful. I watched it. <laughs> I, wa- I watched it for no, just that's what I chose to do. You periscoped I, it. I opened up the live stream and I watched it. <laughs> we were walking down the street today and, and some old, nice, very nice woman heard us talking about Trump and she started ranting about it. And Lovett goes, do you want a periscope with me? <laughs> <laughs> Always be posting. Always be posting. <laughs> Content is king. We're here because of it. But the point on the Affordable Care Act is, look, there... Speaking of content and content management, uh, happy birthday, Tanya, wherever you are. We're not going to say your last name because this is going to go out to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is yeah, a, lot, this a podcast for all the yokels who can get tickets. <laughs> <laughs> please, please come help us. Um, so, yeah, no, I think on the Affordable Care Act, look, there's going to be some things like executive orders where uh, Trump's going to have a lot of power. I think on the Affordable Care Act, people can make a difference. Right. You go to these town halls, there's going to be a recess week um, coming up, uh, not next week, the week after, and a lot of these Republicans are going to hold town halls, and if they are swamped with people who are very angry about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, they're going to think twice. And, and one, this hap- yeah. look, we say this because... We, we were in the Obama administration in 2009. We did not have a very great summer in the summer of 2009. We were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act because the Tea Party swamped those town halls. Yep. And, you know, Jason Chaffetz, who has basically abdicated his responsibility uh, for oversight, happened to sign on to a letter with the Democratic chair of, of the committee uh, criticizing Kellyanne Conway yep. for hawking shoes in the press briefing room. It's insane. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like, try these shoes on. I like them. They look good on my feet. Um, <laughs> Uh, when I'm crying alone in my bathtub, I use a, I use a Trump brand towel. <laughs> when I can't look at myself in the mirror... Anyway, you were uh, saying? What were you talking about? <laughs> oh, he signed on to the letter because he knew he had the town hall that night and he needed something to say to a room full of incredibly angry uh, constituents. So right, right. it's going to be hard. We're going to lose some fights, but it does make a difference. It does. Um, okay, we have a very special guest here. We should probably bring him out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. My pleasure, man. Thanks a lot. Um, 
Okay, like I feel a little underdressed, <laughs> um, but I'm moving shirts, so it's fine. You're doing merchandising, it's all right. right. Always be selling. Right. Always be <laughs> Are you getting warm though? What? Are you getting a little Not warm? Not yet. Okay. Mary de Blasio, uh, thank coming. you for joining us. You're very welcome. our little show here. Um, so about a month after the election, uh, Politico ran a story about you with a very Politico headline. It was, uh, Bill de Blasio finds his mojo as the anti-Trump. Um, I was looking for my mojo. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. so, good. so you found the mojo. Um, is that a fair characterization? But more seriously, how has Trump's presidency changed your tenure as mayor? Yeah, I, I think it's not a fair characterization because the vision that I've had and so many New Yorkers shares, we had to change this place and we had to shake the foundations of what had been the status quo in New York City for decades, and that was going to happen regardless of who was president of the United States. But I think what has happened with uh, the Trump presidency, it has crystallized uh, our sense of uh, me and, and people in this city and mayors all over the country has crystallized a sense of mission of what we have to do to defend our people, how we have to build a resistance, how we have to make it national. And um, look, you wish you didn't, obviously. But I have to tell you, um, I'm seeing some things that I wished I had seen a long time ago in terms of people organizing and mobilizing and, and owning the political process. And if that is a byproduct of Trumpism that we can turn into much bigger change, yeah. there's potentially something great there. Why do you think it took Trump to sort of galvanize that reaction and, and it didn't happen as much during the, the 2016 campaign? What do you think? Do you think progressives were just sort of... You know, look, I, I think that this was a painful lost opportunity. And uh, I was at the convention in Philadelphia, and I felt at that moment we had the most progressive platform the Democratic Party had had in decades. There was real unity. It wasn't perfect, but, you know, in the scheme of a big political party, it was pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the juxtaposition was so clear. And then just I think the campaign became about the wrong thing. I think, unfortunately, the Democrats and... I have immense respect for Hillary, the, the Democratic Party writ large and the Clinton campaign in specific, focused on what was wrong with Donald Trump, his character, his personality, and not what we needed to do for the American people and how we needed to change things, and, and didn't reference that extraordinary progressive platform enough. And in the end, one thing you learn, you know, if you're sort of listening to people is they, everyone needs something to vote for, not just something to vote against. Right. Really elemental notion in politics. All those folks who stayed home, there's no question that Hillary had a working majority in Michigan and Pennsylvania, you know, and, and states that she lost, but people stayed home because it didn't feel it was enough about them and for them. And that is a fixable problem. So that's why I'm not without hope, but it's painful to think about that victory was staring us in the face, and, you know, and that's, that's acknowledging that she still won by three million votes. <laughs> Right. You know, and that that's kind of, I try and start, I, you know, I, wherever I go, I say, hey, let's start the conversation with Hillary won with three million votes, the Democrats won with three million mm -hmm. votes, and then everything else gets a little bit clearer. Right. Because we have a president who does not have an electoral mandate in any way, shape, or form. And that's empowering for all of us to remember that, you know, it's our country, we have the majority, we just have to make it real now. Um, So it's interesting you brought up, I mean, I want to know how you handle this as mayor uh, when you're talking about Trump, because I think Trump gives us like 100 targets a day, yep. right? And 
I think the Clinton campaign probably would have said, you know, we're out there giving economic speeches, but every time Trump opens his mouth, everything becomes about Trump and you have to respond to Trump, right? And, I think she ran a perfect campaign. Right, yeah, you think, yeah. Um, no, and I think, look, I think they could have been a lot more creative in trying to break through. I think yeah. that's the job of any politician. But going forward, how do we ensure that every day isn't only about Trump, right, when Trump dominates the headlines and does so many things that we disagree with? Like, how do you get that message out? I think we have to take away the exceptionalism uh, argument around Trump because mm -hmm. the notion that he was doing things that were different you know, he was using Twitter differently. He was throwing out something outrageous every day. You're right, he gave all these looks. Um, guess what? Th that's been done down through the ages in different forms. Uh, anyone who at any given moment or any movement that dominated the political discourse did some variation of that. He wasn't the first, he didn't, he didn't invent fire. You know, it's not the first person to do something creative that threw off the opposition. You should not tell him about fire. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, strike that from the record. Uh, yeah, it could be dangerous. Uh, but look, uh, I think the answer is he, he did, I think he creates chaos purposefully. I think he's quite cagey about it. And if someone's doing that, you have to either create counter chaos or you have to create a, a consistency that people can latch on to. And the guy is, I mean, before he had his cabinet set selections, we knew we had a millionaire, billionaire, whatever he is, you know, we can debate that, but whatever it is, he's a really rich guy <laughs> who's the son of a really rich guy, born with a silver spoon, cheated workers, sent jobs overseas. You know, this script writes itself of delegitimizing him in the eyes of working people, including all those folks in the Rust Belt who were looking for solutions and said, hey, I could go with that guy. That could have been blown up sky high. It's not his character. It's, it's his life, his experience, everything he did against working people. So that was one way was to just disrupt his disruption. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying it's easy. You, you've all been part of this process. It's not easy, but there was a game plan there. And to give people something to latch onto. I, I felt very strongly the party was saying, let's tax the wealthy and make them pay their fair share in taxes. Like people wanted to hear that. They wanted to hear it. They didn't hear it enough. And it was there in the platform. It was beautiful. Democrats were the party that wanted to tax the wealthy more and use that money to help people. But that didn't come across consistently. So. You know, I, I think the lesson in this is, what if we did it right, right? What if we did it right? I, I think we now have, and we saw this on the day after the inauguration, I, I really think the history is incredible. Those are the largest demonstrations against a new president in the history of the republic. Yeah. Like, in the entire history, right? And think about the magnitude of that, and organize in ways we'd never dreamed of before. This is what makes me hopeful and the town hall meetings you were referring to, and people rising up locally on Affordable Care Act and all these other issues. Our mission now is to build a national movement. He, you know, I always say this, Trump says he built a movement. I'm not sure it's my definition of the word movement, but he says he <laughs> built a movement, right? Yeah. Well, some of them are in little carts. Yeah, but <laughs> he says he built a movement, we need to build our movement. Our movement's gonna be bigger. Right. Our movement's just going to be bigger, and the demonstrations proved it that Saturday, and what you see on ACA, you're exactly right, it's I have not seen people retreat from a position this quickly in a long, long time, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, remember Monty Python, run away, right? It's like, it's like that. I mean, they're just in full retreat. Um, that's because people are moving. And that is the seeds of a different political alignment. That's what's exciting about it. So let's talk about the protests for a second, because I do think it's these protests we've seen across the country, um, 
after, right after it was inaugural, the Women's March, but also at airports across the country. It was one of the few, I think, really bright spots and, and inspiring uh, things that happened. And it did wrest the microphone away from Donald Trump yep. and, and some attention. And I feel like you have two hats. You're, you're someone who uh, is sort of actively leading, fighting Trump in the city, but you're also the mayor of the city and in charge of uh, making sure there aren't disruptions at the airport. How do you draw that line? You know, there were people uh, trying to get to the protests at JFK, and all of a sudden, AirTrans shut down because yeah. the, air traps, uh, the uh, airport's too crowded. Um, where do you stand? How much disruption, disruption will you allow uh, to uh, make clear to, that we're opposed to Donald Trump's agenda? I don't see it as disruption to begin with, uh, nor does the NYPD. And this is one thing that I think is very powerful about this city. We have a long tradition of uh, understanding that protest is part of American life and democracy. And uh, I will say, there are times in history where, you know, I don't think the city government, the NYPD, did it the way it should have been done. But I think now we're in, we're in a much better place where, I mean, look at the protests, uh, the 400,000 people uh, the day after the inauguration. Uh, I think it was an extraordinary example, and that was expected to be something much smaller. You know, we expect things to happen. We're going to flow with it. We're going to make it work. Uh, even something as chaotic as the airports uh, we worked with. I think this is a moment where people have to stand up and rework the agenda because what you said a moment ago is true. This is how you wrest back the attention. And, and it's actually, you know, the fourth branch of government argument, right? Uh, it's great that the judiciary is showing its independence. That's very important. It's great that the Congress is starting to freak out about things like the <laughs> ACA and, and showing not necessarily noble independence, but maybe electoral uh, survival independence, right? Mm -hmm. But the fourth branch of the people, in effect. And now the people are starting to dictate the agenda in a way we have not seen. It's nascent. We have to do a lot more. But my point of view, running this city, I can run this city fine and still uh, respect and support people's right to protest. There's no contradiction. And I think, you know, uh, some of the journalists in New York City have gotten into this habit of like, oh, don't, don't poke the beast. Don't say anything, you know, wrong. Don't say anything nasty about Donald Trump. He'll, he'll so vindictive. He'll take funding away, right? My answer is every time, you know, the only thing he's going to respond to is strength. Show weakness, show deference, and you're definitely dead, right? So, so strength, people, numbers, resol you know, being resolute, being willing to go to court and take them on, um, and, and show strength in numbers. Cities banding together around the country, states banding together. That's how you undercut the momentum. He depends on momentum. I will name drop for a moment. I had a, a wonderful kind of revelatory conversation with one of our great activists who also happens to be an actor, Mark Ruffalo, who is extraordinary. And he made a, a very powerful point to me some weeks back before the inauguration that Trump not only needs the attention, he needs unfettered momentum. Yeah. Disrupt the momentum, disrupt the flow, and he visibly kind of spins out of control for a while. We may be yeah. seeing that right now. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Amen. You might say Trump smash. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> that was deep. Uh, <laughs> Had a whole minute to work on it. Right. <laughs> I saw you write that on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't forget it. But, uh, the, but yeah, I think this is what is so interesting because the fact that he's not mainstream, on the one hand, it's you know, troubling, and, and we've seen things that we really haven't seen and shouldn't see. On the other hand, there's a vulnerability because his shtick depends on this kind of swirl that if you let, it's like, a, it's like a, you know, a whirlwind or a tornado and you get caught up into it, but if you disrupt it, if you just sort of throw the monkey wrench in, he doesn't have a next act a lot of the time. No. And that's where I think people have to feel their own power. And I, honestly, the movements we're seeing right now have only begun.
This is tip of the iceberg, in my view. So I, I'm wondering where you see. Yeah, yeah I'm glad that. <laughs> where Ruffalo goes, so does Nation. <laughs> um, Mr. Mayor, I, I want to ask about the role of the press. Um, you obviously represent a city with a rabid, voracious press corps. Uh, Donald Trump figured out how to manipulate them, many of them, during the campaign. Uh, not Brian Stelter. Not Brian. It diminished, <laughs> right. it diminished greatly over time, but I'm wondering, um, wondering, A, what you think the role of a press corps is in a Trump administration when they will lie to your face, and B, you know, if you think politicians or you yourself have learned a lesson from his handling of the press, and maybe, maybe it's the wrong one, right, which is they just give them the Heisman and, and refuse to answer questions. And I'm wondering, how do we go from here? Like what, what is the role of reporters going forward? Yeah, I, I, don't, I think we should be cautious to think more has changed than it has. I don't think the fundamentals have changed at all. I think he is attempting, you know, the fact-free environment. Uh, the, the, it's like germ-free, but it's fact-free. Uh, so um, I think the media has a, a really sharp opportunity here to just do pure, visible, sharp, fast fact-checking. I think it works. I think, you know, it's quite clear there is a, a big, there are millions and millions of Americans who are looking for that, want that. And being thoroughly unintimidated by Trump, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword for Trump. He can try and keep people out of his press conferences. Uh, you know, he can try and deny mainstream media as mainstream media. I mean, I, I, I wish, you know, I wish the CNNs of the world would challenge the status quo more often. Uh, but that being said, they are, you know, no one can call them, oh, look at the, you know, they're the super liberal media or the super conservative media. No, they're the mainstream. And, and they do uh, perform a function of fact-checking, and that matters, and people want it, and they need it. And I, don't, I think, therefore, the, the notion that Trump is affecting other people's approach to media, I don't, I don't know anyone who wants to be like him in the relationship with the media or with the, the electorate. I think he's, you know, he's a thing unto himself. So I don't see it infecting, I don't think, I think folks who try and be like, you know, faux Trump or the next, the next iteration aren't gonna get very far, I honestly believe it. Uh, and I think in the end, the public demanding of the media that, that never letting things go. I'll give you an example, you know, the Russian intervention in the election, right? Uh, that was super hot for a few days, and then another hundred things happened. Yeah. Let the, one of the things the media has to do, and they've done it in previous eras, is don't forget that part about another country intervening in our election. Right. <laughs> right? You've got to keep coming back to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. Are you worried about... Are you worried about the rise of, of blatantly partisan, um, dubious media organizations like Breitbart or Crooked Media <laughs> having an elevated role in the discourse? Yeah, but I, I said the other day, and I meant it, don't, don't think for a moment they just emerged in the last years. Right. I, I mean, News Corp, Fox, the New York Post were doing the, the precursors of this for decades. Sure. And let's be clear. And they helped build the platform that led to Donald Trump. Right. So I, there's, there's a little bit of revisionism going on here. There, again, I, there are purely mainstream corporate media entities out there, you know, your CNNs and your, your network uh, televisions and, you know, your Washington Post, your New York Times, fine. But long ago, we had a model of something that was partisan and ideologically driven and was trying to change the entire structure of the public discourse. News Corp did that. Breitbart then did it in a different, even more extreme way. You got to be worried about it. But uh, part of it is just, you know, fighting back with information because I, I think most people, you know, I love this. I think you're totally right about the Affordable Care Act. I think most people like get down to kitchen table issues really quickly, right? So 
they, uh, let's, let's take a Trump voter, including one who might have been an Obama voter before, that famous Obama, Obama, Trump voter, right? They felt that Washington hadn't delivered for them. Well, guess what? Washington hadn't delivered for them. So that was not an unfair feeling. They were angry and frustrated with the status quo. I can understand that. They looked at Trump and thought, well, maybe he's different enough to do something. Right. And they, as famously, they didn't necessarily take all his words literally. Well, then he says, I'm actually going to take away your health insurance. That is not a Trump voter anymore. The person who's going to lose their family's health insurance or has been lied to about their jobs coming back or who thought he was going to drain the swamp, but he found pretty much every single human being at Goldman Sachs and named him to a cabinet <laughs> position. Right? That's not draining the swamp. Yeah. And then a tax cut. This is, remember, what's about to happen? This is the one that's going to light the match. Tax cuts for the wealthy, tax cuts for corporations, and deregulation of Wall Street. Do you think those Trump working class voters who want to change are going to feel good about that? They're not. They're going to drop him like a hot potato. And in time for the 2018 congressional elections. Yeah. So We should win those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty important. <laughs> but... I will make my analogy. I was thinking about this before joining your August show this evening, <laughs> and I needed something really high-minded that would like, appeal to a well-educated audience. <laughs> so I was moved in the last year by the trailer to the extraordinarily tacky video game becomes movie called Hitman 47. Okay, okay now why, why well, am I bringing this? I'm just, why? Let's be careful. Why am I bringing it up? <laughs> because as seeing the trailer, where the hitman, this, this super being who's trying to assassinate all these evil people is in prison and the evil interrogators are there and there's a lot of them and they have him in prison and it's a super secure facility and they're mocking him because he's locked in here with his captors. And he says a variation of the line, I'm not locked in here with you, you're locked in here with me. My point, we're not, <laughs> we're not locked in here with Donald Trump. He's locked in here with us. Are we doing an escape room? Yeah. <laughs> that's, um, that's right. That's great. Uh, it's a, America is in an escape room, and we just have to solve the puzzle <laughs> to get out. <laughs> but, I mean, think about it. I mean, we, we have, again, we have a working majority, three million more votes in the election, biggest demonstrations against the president in history. People are going immediately, you know, all over the Affordable Care Act, Republicans in retreat. It's not a triumphalist vision. We have huge amounts of work to do, and there'll be ups and downs along the way. But the point being, we have much more high ground and strength in the equation than people felt in the weeks after the election. The weeks after the election were incredibly depressing, right? We, a great time. It was very really hard to bit. feel your power in those weeks. I and became a media mogul then, um, <laughs> but I get that for other people. But, but that, I mean, people, people lost track of their own power and their own impact. And now it, it just burst on January 21st, like the, the whole thing reset. Yeah. yeah. The whole thing reset. Yeah. And now the question is people feeling their power and their opportunity to make an impact. And really, he's the one who has the problem now. Um, in the last 48 hours, there have been reports that um, there have been uh, an increased number of ICE raids in various communities, cities across the country where uh, they're deporting undocumented immigrants. Uh, you've said that in New York City you would resist any order to uh, deport undocumented immigrants. How confident... Um, how confident are you that you have both the legal and financial 
resources to, to win that fight. So let me, let me make it clear. The, the threat that was put to us with the executive order on immigration right. was that the federal government would defund us if we did not cooperate in turning over any and all undocumented individuals. And our response was, we have never, in, for decades, by the way, ironically, including the administration of Rudy Giuliani as mayor, we have not allowed. What happened to that guy? When yeah. did he lose his mind? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was screaming we, about a Muslim man on Fox last time I saw him. We never heard from him again. But New York City came to the realization that if a city with now half a million undocumented folks in it, 800,000 permanent residents, a lot of undocumented folks who have uh, loved ones in the city who are citizens. I mean, it's all mixed together, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about the fabric of our city. So that if an undocumented person couldn't walk up to a police officer and report a crime or couldn't go to their child's school to visit or couldn't go to a public hospital for fear of their identity being uncovered and their documentation status being uncovered and therefore imagine half a million people who would, couldn't participate in any way in society. Long ago, consensus emerged in the city. We could not run the city. We couldn't have a safe city if we didn't say, guess what? You're not going to have any problem right. with anyone here in the city of New York. You're not going to be asked. You're not going to be reported. You can come safely forward as a human being, as a, you know, a resident of our city. And that helped us to become a safer city. You know, for 25 years straight, this city's gotten safer and safer, the safest big city in America. One of the reasons was that a pact was formed with folks, including a document, to say, you matter too, you're part of this, and you can go about your life without fear of deportation, okay? What we have recognized in this executive order is it literally would undermine the fundamental safety and security of this city and cities all over the country by breaking that bond. And so New York City a long time ago said, the only times we'll cooperate with ICE is for very serious and or violent crimes. We literally legislated, we have a list of 170 crimes that we categorize as that's a matter of city law. That's where we'll cooperate. Very, very few undocumented immigrants commit those crimes. The vast majority of undocumented, and this is, this is one of the things we have to correct in this discussion. The vast majority of undocumented immigrants, like everybody else, commit no crimes right. and go about their business. Right. And then to the extent people commit crimes, it's like the general population. The most common crimes are quality of life crimes, right? Someone littered, you know? They did very small things. We're not going to deport people because they littered, right? We're just that, and, and have children left behind while their parents are taken to another country, right? So, so for every point of view, both a humane point of view, a public safety point of view, a what do you do with a family that's torn apart that's not fair to them, and then we end up having to somehow pick them up and help them. Yep. By every measure, it makes sense to have a very, very high standard around a certain number of very serious offenses. So when the executive order came down, first of all, it was like a Swiss cheese. Like we looked at it and said, this thing is thoroughly, thoroughly challengeable in court. <laughs> right? It just, there were so many elements of it that were contradictory that make sense. Second, it said that, you know, it was a Supreme Court decision a few years ago written by none other than Justice Roberts, thank you very much, <laughs> that said, <laughs> You can't take away all the funding when there's a disagreement over a substantive area. So the two areas that were mentioned were Homeland Security and Justice Department. Guess where their funding goes, the NYPD. So now if the Trump administration wants to take away anti-terrorism funding from the NYPD, <laughs> right? They want to do that. In the name of 
Counterterrorism. Yeah. Right. In the name of safety and security, they're going to take away anti-terrorism funding Makes from the sense NYPD. To me. Right? They have a problem. They have a problem right there in the number one terror target in the country. But we also think they're beatable in court on the face of it. This notion they can reach in and take away all your funding is just plain unconstitutional. Don't ask me. Ask Justice Roberts. So, but so, <laughs> uh, that speaks to what you can do right. and the decisions you can make. Right. But the administration also has power here, right? They can come in. They can do raids. They can conduct uh, federal, you know, uh, uh, deportation raids inside of Manhattan, inside of New York City, whenever they want. Um, what is your response if something like that? They would have happen? they have a relatively small force. You know, I have a police department of 36,000 officers who are not going to be part of those raids. And uh, we're going to have a clear standard. If anyone shows up from any federal agency, they best have the proper warrants and everything better be correct or we have a problem, as we would, by the way, outside of immigration or any other situation. If anybody appears from another jurisdiction and doesn't have the proper warrants, we don't participate. But, you know, I'm not going to be shocked. We've heard just in the last day of raids beginning in some places I think the challenge here is uh, raids here are going to generate tremendous public feeling, just like uh, the executive order around uh, the refugees did and the impact it had at the airports and all. If they really want to see that all over again, they can come into here and a lot of other cities, and that's the kind of opposition they'll get. On the narrow question, is it possible for ICE agents to you know, go and find some individuals and take them into custody with a proper warrant? Yes, they can do that. They can't do that every day. They can't do that to everyone. They have limits. If local police forces, and not only has my police commissioner made clear that he's not going to let the men and women of the NYPD be turned into uh, enforcement agents for ICE, uh, police commissioners and chiefs all over the country are saying it. So that means ICE is on their own. So they can do some things, but they can no, by no means do sort of a broad, huge national effort without local police forces participating. I just want to drill down on it for one more second because Look, we're in this situation where things move fast, and you sound crazy till you don't sound crazy. Um, you I'm sound about crazy. to wow. sound crazy. Was that? I was going to say. <laughs> That's I, what a I crazy thought, person says. I thought there was a joke oh, no. there. Trigger warning. Uh, I thought no, there was but, a joke, but I thought, <laughs> wait, you're serious. Tim Russell, might, no, I am being serious for a second, which is, uh, there, if, if we view this EO as some sort of you know, omen of something to come, and there are attempts to do deportations out of cities like New York, maybe as a show of strength, they may, have, they may bring in enough people to do deportations, but they're not going to be able to bring in enough people to quell protests. You know, we saw already just in the first raids that were happening in California, we saw protests, we saw people getting in the wheel wells of ICE trucks, of ICE uh, vehicles, and, right. and, and uh, police needing to be involved in dis uh, dispersing those protests. Again, you're the mayor of New York, you oppose Trump, what happens? I think this is, and I don't mean to belittle the challenge, I think it's an excellent uh, I, I, question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I like about you? What? <laughs> Tell me. You've got moxie, pal. <laughs> That's all he wanted. That's why he came. You don't even yeah. need to answer. Yeah, you you <laughs> One compliment. Tell me. <laughs> that, guy, that guy's a real go-getter. But uh, uh, I'm not belittling the, the potential for not only unprecedented things, but very messy, even dangerous things happening. But I'm trying to put things in perspective. Um, there is not a national police force. 
One of the things that Trump sort of tried to project onto the country was his own special right-wing vision of like, you know, a federal government that could do whatever it wanted. Well, there's a constitution in the way of that to begin with. And then there's the, just the reality of a country that was built on a lot of localities. That's the whole concept of America and states and, and everyone has their own uh, persona and values. So he's not gonna have the cooperation of uh, a huge number of the major police forces around the country. So there you're right. Yeah, you could concentrate a lot of federal agents and go someplace and do that sometimes. Yeah. But then you're going to have a massive public protest. And as we said a few minutes back, I think a point you made, when the, when the energy shifts to the massive public protest and the attention is on all the people are saying this is wrong. And by the way, the faith community is a part of this. You know, the, the Catholic Church is a part of opposing this. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here. When you've got a bunch of police chiefs and a bunch of Catholic bishops saying this is wrong, Think twice, Donald Trump, right? right. Yeah. So I would argue, sure, they'll try some. I agree, they'll try some. And it'll be some dangerous and messy moments, and we're all going to have to stand firm, and we're all going to have to mobilize. But I think it's not going to be a winning equation. I think it's going to show a, a moral uh, line that most Americans are going to say, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. They, American, the American people, I think, have... Obviously, there's a strong split in this country on issues of immigration, although a lot of times you see a majority that say we'd like to find a way forward to something that, that once and for all answers the question, some pathway to the 11, 12 million people resolve positively their situation. Uh, you know, I don't think the American people in general like to see families torn apart. You know, I, I think when you, when you break it down, it's a bit like the ACA debate, right? Uh, folks didn't like, some folks didn't like Obamacare because they either didn't understand it, because they thought it wasn't being implemented well, because they thought it was for other people, not them, right? Or they thought that they were going to keep their doctor and then they couldn't. These were legitimate concerns that as progressives and Democrats, it was our job to answer or, or show improvements and, and respect people's feelings. Well, there's a parallel in immigration. I don't think people in this country want to hurt others. I don't think they want to hurt families who struggled to get here. I think <coughs> they want to know there's some rules that make sense. Uh, and some way forward. If it devolves into literally seeing mothers and children torn apart before your very eyes, that's when moral outrage takes over. That's what happened in the civil rights movement in the 60s, right. when sort of the dam broke on American public opinion. Folks who didn't think it was their yeah. problem started thinking it was their problem. I think if the Trump administration pushes that button too hard, a counter movement starts that's much bigger than anything they've ever seen. I really do. Okay. Um, I'll ask you one last question. You've been very generous with your time. Um, you were a political operative before you were an elected official. Forgive me, Father, I've sinned. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have you learned as mayor that you, you wish you knew when you were a campaign manager? Uh, I have learned that uh, what we thought were the rules of the game were not the rules of the game. That um, a lot of us who were brought up in political work. Now, I want to say, before I did electoral politics, I did issue organizing and grassroots work, um, anti-nuclear power, nuclear disarmament, uh, efforts to end U.S. intervention in Central America back in the 80s. I mean, I did, I did activism before I ever did right. electoral politics in any appreciable way. And I think that was really good because it, it reminded me that the issues and the organizing on the ground are what really matter. But what I found when I got more and more involved in electoral politics is there's all these kind of rituals and traditions and presumed rules 
that have been increasingly being thrown out, but a lot of people in this work don't recognize it. Now, 2016 was kind of the object lesson, and everyone is, of course, talking about Trump. I think you could have the same conversation about the rewriting the rules that Bernie Sanders did. I mean, it was breathtaking. He had no money. He was this quirky guy from Vermont where there's no people, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, and he was supposed to have no chance, but he had an extraordinarily clear vision, and he had authenticity and he had the willingness to speak truth to power. And suddenly, you know, we saw a type of organizing, a type of fundraising that we have literally never seen before on a vast level. That happened in the space of months. So the entire dynamic is changing so profoundly that it just would be really healthy for a lot of us to throw the traditions and the rituals and the assumptions away and see this moment for what it is. And I, even in this conversation evinces, we're trying to make sense of what happened, you know, not a year ago, a month ago, we're trying to make sense of what happened this week and how it's changing the rules, right? But, the, but in a funny way, that's liberating. Uh, in a sort of a creative sense, once you say, okay, a lot of the rules are gone, we're in, we're in uncharted territory, but uncharted territory also allows you to do things you weren't able to do before. We're able to organize people faster and better than we ever have. We're able to form coalitions we didn't used to have the ability to think of because people were too divided along class or race or gender or whatever lines it was. So uh, what I find exciting about this time is we sort of, we're, we're unmoored, we're sort of cut from a lot of the things that used to give us uh, a sense of clarity, but they also held us back. I actually like the freedom of this moment. And what I saw on January 21st convinced me that whether we know we're on the march yet or not, we are on the march right now. It's our, to us to do it. Samir, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank I really you. appreciate you sitting down with us. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you very thank much. You, brother. Thank you so much for thank coming. You. We appreciate it. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop.
All right. <laughs> I can't believe the mayor talked to us. <laughs> I know. Who knew? I think that was great. <laughs> you just think that was great? That was Honestly, great. the president talked to us. So <laughs> That's true. Of course the mayor talked to us. <laughs> All right. Let's bring out our next guest. <laughs> She is uh, the worst. a correspondent <laughs> in CBS News and a writer at The Atlantic and a friend of the pod, Alex the Wagner. Pod. Hi. Hello, hello. Hi, hi. It's in my rider contractually that a mayor has to do my, be my warm-up act. I was going to say, does this happen often? Yeah, in Chicago, it's Rom here. <laughs> How you doing? I mean, there's a lot of answers to that question. Every day in the media, it's like someone throws up a giant handful of disaster confetti <laughs> and it floats down onto the floor and we are tasked with yeah. picking, it, picking it up and pecking at it. And as it lands on four Sean Spicer. Yeah, exactly. He's like, why are you attacking me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a good place to start, which is so much comes at us every day mm-hmm. and it is the job of the media or one of the jobs of the media to make sense of it all for people. Yeah. And how, how do you go about, on a daily basis, figuring out, here's what matters, here's what doesn't matter, here's what might get more clicks, but here's probably what's more important and have a bigger impact. Like, how do you set the agenda at a, at a time? We're asking because like, we're trying to start a media company. Yeah, we're just, this is just advice. <laughs> asking like genuine for a advice. friend. Yeah. Asking for a friend. I think, so I think, to be honest, I'm not sure that we figured that out. Because what? I think, yeah. <laughs> Newsflash. Um, no, because A... The news cycle was speeding up even before Donald Trump, and then Donald Trump sort of added a 60-horsepower engine to it. And I think there's always a pressure, especially in television, to to get to the story that's freshest, right? But especially in the age of Trump, the story that's freshest is not necessarily the most important story, right? I mean, and today, there are 17 different stories. Do do we write about the fact that Trump didn't have his earpiece in when he was having a bilateral press conference with Shinzo Abe? Do we write about really Do we write? No, we missed that. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 see, you didn't even know that. Like, that the, means do, he couldn't hear anything translated. That I means mean, he has no idea what was said. We, but here's it. But literally. But guys, he guys, doesn't speak Japanese. He nodded, Trump. he nodded the whole time. <laughs> He just nodded That's along because yeah. he's a fucking pro. He is a pro. <laughs> he's a pro. I mean, while unbelievable. While I was backstage, CNN and BuzzFeed are reporting that elements of the 35-page dossier have been yeah. confirmed to be true. Oh yeah. Right. So like, not the pee, not yeah. the pee tape Ritz-Carl- though. Yeah. Not the pee pee tape. Not the, the Ritz Carlton part. Not have, the fun part. Yeah. Not the salacious. They're, they're so like details. we are not even talking about the salacious part. Yes, right. you are. But like, <laughs> that's just in the last three hours. So yeah. I mean. He has really put the media, I think, is putting the media through its paces in terms of, like, what are you, what are you just going to cover, and then what are you going to deem important? And it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's, impo- it's sort of impossible. This is, like, my hobby horse lately, because you're right. So much is happening, and at the same time, I think we're having a very hard time helping people understand that the media is their voice, and without them, they're not going to figure out the information they need. But I'm watching... Um, access get eroded and it's just sort of happening and i'm wondering like what can the white house correspondents association do to stand up and prevent this because get a sean, great comedian for that dinner sean, <laughs> sean spicer's so briefings funny. are like 11 minutes long now and it used to be that the ap would call it after an hour right he did one press conference during the whole transition they lie with reckless abandon it's like what what stick does the press have 
to enforce these norms or rules or exact a cost? So two things. You know, you talk about Sean Spicer and the way he conducts, conducts a press conference today at the bilateral press conference. Donald Trump only call, called on Murdoch-owned American news outlets. Unbelievable. Fox Business News and the New York Post. That's it. Um, <laughs> so that, that's, that's, I mean, that's, I think that's yeah. something that we should be talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. who's getting preferential treatment? Who's even, who's getting treatment, period? Um, you know, I think I, I covered the White House. I was a White House reporter, yeah. and I went to those briefings every day. And I will say, I think it's important that the, the press stays in the West Wing. I think it's important that they continue to have those briefings. But I think there was a kind of complacency that can set in in terms of that beat in particular. You're sort of right. spoon-fed these, these things every day. The best reporting that comes out of the White House is, is the reporting that happens behind the scenes, where Definitely. reporters are really working for it. And I think it is now incumbent upon the press to circumvent this White House in many ways and go to the agency cultivate sources. I mean, it's, yeah. it's going to be hard, but you know, the real work of reporting is as urgent as ever. And I, I think that there are a lot of really great reporters that have, I mean, Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush at the New York Times, yeah. who are two yeah. of my favorite reporters, um, have been breaking incredible stories from the lion failing New York Times, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. the fact is Donald Trump says he hates these mainstream media outlets, but he follows them religiously and obsessively. Yeah, I mean, the only reason we know, the only reason we have this wonderful image of Donald Trump wandering around the White House in a bathrobe <laughs> yelling about Don Lemon yeah. is because of the <laughs> failing New York Times. Thank you, Glenn and Maggie. Which he then denied. But did he? Because he probably talked about it. He doesn't even own a bathrobe. A kimono, perhaps. <laughs> Not a bathrobe. I don't that even worst, have a bathrobe. I was wondering if there was a worse image than Donald Trump in a bathrobe. <laughs> Not. It is You're Donald Trump in a kimono. Wait a second. You're kimono, no earpiece. Maybe he speaks Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's fluent. Um, well, but this brings up the issue of trust in the media, right? Right. Because... Before. He barely speaks English. <laughs> Gotta master that first language. It's from his original Japanese. He's in his mind translating yeah. the Japanese back into English. Um, I don't know. So before Trump, trust in the media was sort of at an all-time low. Right. right. And now we have a president who just about every day tries to undermine the media and tells people that there's fake news, that the media is lying to them. And... The trouble is, I mean, we can all make fun of it here, but like there's a good portion of the country who does look at the New York Times and CNN and a lot of these mainstream media publications and now says, yeah, they're, they're probably lying. It's fake news. They're just out to get Donald Trump. And he has, I mean, he didn't start it, but he certainly contributed to yeah. it. Yeah. So when you're at one of these publications or one of these outlets, like where do you begin to start rebuilding that trust? Or is it even, I mean... Well... There is a certain section of the country that truly believes that thousands of Massachusetts voters were bust into the state of New Hampshire to throw the race for against Donald Trump and Kelly. Right? We would never drive. That was a claim made today as yeah. well by the pre yeah. sitting president of the United States. Um, and I don't know how you get certain parts of the country back, to be honest. I mean, I think if you have dismissed places like CBS and the New York Times and, t and CNN as fake news, I mean... A, I don't know where you're getting your, your information, but I don't know how you pull people back from that other side. I think it's, I mean, but I don't think that that's a bulk of the country. I mean, I think that's a, a, a fairly narrow slice. I think there is a, a much softer middle that kind of like sort of gave up on following the news because it just all seemed kind of depressing or Congress was riddled with inaction. And, right. you know, 
and now, as the mayor said, the stakes are just a lot higher. And I feel like, I mean, I, I have friends in my life who didn't follow politics closely and now are completely fucking obsessed with it. Yeah. Um, and that's I great. I mean, I think yeah. a re reawakening of civic engagement is great. And people were complaining when Trump announced his pick for SCOTUS. They were like, oh, the networks are falling into the trap. They're giving him a prime time slot. And I thought, you know what? It's awesome that America is getting a primetime announcement totally. for a Supreme Court nominee. And that people are like throwing around the term EO as shorthand <laughs> for executive order. I mean, like, that's, that's great. There's right. a new, there's a sort of rejuvenated fluency in, in political terminology and people understand how the system works better. I'm trying to be patient with like newly woke people texting me like, did you see this? Like, yes, I've been yeah. following the news for my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love, it, love it doesn't do our outreach. <laughs> Tanya, where are you? Where are you? Um, I only prepared for the mayor. I don't have a question. You don't have a question? <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just interrupt with jokes. <laughs> um, well, so, no. <laughs> True. But I interrupted the mayor. Uh, <laughs> No, so I, I want to like kind of break down this, this sort of distrust in the media because I do think some of it is there is this right-wing media that's sort of propaganda and, and all these things, but I think that there's a larger issue of mistrust that doesn't have anything to do with partisanship that has to do with the way the news is reported, sensationalism, a feeling as though they're not getting the whole story, that they can't trust it, that it's corporate-owned, um, and these are problems that long predated Donald Trump. Yeah, for right. sure. Ratings predated Donald Trump. Right. And ratings are a real driver. I mean, there is a, <laughs> it is not a coincidence that, you know, we talk about the cable news ratings for the election. That really matters, that advertiser uh, rates have gone up since Donald Trump has become president. Money is at the root of a lot of decision-making in the news industry, and that is abhorrent to a lot of people. That's also the way it works in the United States of America. Um, that, is not, that is not to say that money drives every decision and that there isn't a uh, very well-intentioned... I mean, I can say at CBS there's an incredibly strong sort of institutional mindset about news and being judicious and trying to cover things fairly and, and comprehensively. At the same time, there are, things, there are basic sort of... There are practicalities that, that limit that, like time. I mean, you know, it, it's, you, you start out in the news media and someone tells you, oh, your hit's going to be an out, a minute and 45 seconds, and you're like the fuck am I going to say in a minute and 45 right. seconds? Yeah. And then you're like, oh my God, I have a minute and 45 seconds? Because <laughs> your whole way of sort of processing information changes the longer you're, you're sort of in the industry. Um, and there's a good side and a bad side to that. Um, it's hard to be, you know, to discuss topics, I think, in the detail and as comprehensively as one might want in the time frame in which we're given. Yeah. Let me give you a chance to to butter up your employer. How, how is, that's cool. How is 60 Minutes, or how has CBS managed to like have institutions that have persevered, right? Like 60 Minutes has been great for decades. You have Charlie Rose, who's been doing basically yeah. the same thing. On that, for like, they just, they put him in that room with that table like 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It's a fine lacquer. It's a fine, a fine lacquer, lacquer on that, that table. table. <laughs> that's how you get the youth. Fine lacquer. That's how you draw the millennials in. <laughs> the finish. You really know the ins and outs, love it. Charlie Rose, who we're all praying for because he's going to have surgery yes. right now. Yes, we love Charlie. We, we love Charlie, Charlie. Rose. We say that Charlie's on the mend. He has a lion heart. He will be yes. back on the air. But you guys have done it right for a long time, and you've done it substantively and like great shows that people love. I'm wondering, like, is there a special sauce there? Uh, I mean, well, yes, there is. I was at Tune NBC in. before that, right? right. I mean, I, I haven't been in CBS that long, so I wouldn't presume, I would not say, I'm not speaking for the organization when I say this, but I, you know, 
in, I think David Rhodes is the president of, of CBS and, and takes the sort of mission and the heard history of, of the place. Yeah. H- heard of that guy. <laughs> no, his brother. Uh, really seriously. And they made a bet. I mean, I think you see this most concretely in the morning, which is all about news is back. And, right. and there is a, there's a thinking that is both, I think, strategic and substantive that, you know what? Everyone else is doing this, so why don't we do this thing? And this right. thing happens to be news, facts, information. Right. Well, so, okay, but, but so when we talk about ratings, we're really talking about what people want, right? And yeah. so we have this strange phenomenon, which is people... Well, but is, is that... I mean, that's the question. Well, so I don't know, but, but, but clearly, you know, these morning shows, right, are incredibly attuned to what people are tuning in for. And it's why you see, you know, less substance and you see more cooking and what have you kind of into these shows. And I guess the question is, how do we have a situation where people on, on a whole distrust the media because of the things it pursues for ratings. Those ratings are determined by, by what the, the consumers want. And so how often... You calling people dumb? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm calling <laughs> not them a bunch of face. hypocrites. <laughs> um, dumb hypocrites. No, <laughs> um, but, but, but um, how often is this criticism of the media really a cr- criticism of, of news consumers? Well, I think there's definitely a self-loathing aspect to <laughs> criticism of the news, right? Uh, but... I mean, it's a really tough question. I mean, to a certain degree, you could say, well, the reason people like, you know, cute pet videos is because you keep giving them to us. The reason reason you're eating so many damn Doritos is because they're on sale. I mean, there's like a circular logic to all of this. I, I can't, and I can't, def- I mean, like, I can't, I'm yeah. not here, I, like, it'd be great if we had our version of the BBC in the U.S. too, right? I mean, I think there's a place for all different kinds of sponsored media in, in the world, but the reality is what it is, and I think overall, I've been really heartened by the fact that subscriptions to the New York Times are at an all-time high, that people are, you know, people feel like they need to double down and reinvest in the news media. And I got to tell you, I was down in Washington during the inauguration, and I had to cover the women's protest, and I have been in a lot of public space. People were coming up to me, I had a camera crew with me, and they were like, Good for you. We love you. You're part of the media. <laughs> and like, crazy. that like, never happens. Yeah, that <laughs> never happens. People are like, get the hell out of You know, usually there is a sense that like the work we're doing val- it right. matters. Yeah. And, and, and that's really nice because that has not been, yeah. I think, the general. You know, President Obama, who... Um, Did our show. <laughs> Friend of the pod. Show. Friend of the pod. That's, that's the thing he's most known for. He, he knows him <laughs> from fake news. It's not the ACA. <laughs> Barack it's, Obama, the 45th yeah. president. Unemployed the community organizer. Of the, one of the, yeah. Unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> Official. He, you know, he was not great with access in the White House. And yeah. He was, yeah. See, you're laughing. Hi. Do you know he what show you're on? And, and, and that. <laughs> he's perfect. <laughs> he's a literal angel. He never made the a mistake. The door in the floor is going to open now. No one mistake. I, I'm, not, I'm not making, I'm not <laughs> no. drawing any equivalence no, between him and do. Donald no, Trump. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, he, he, it, it was, I, I thought it was really interesting that in his last press conference, <laughs> he went on and on about how important the press was. Right. Now, you guys know, I mean, I'll ask you this, John yeah. and John and Tommy. You know, he wasn't super psyched about the press for most of his tenure. I heard some media criticism from time to time. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. just gonna, maybe right. I started it. Yeah. I'm just I'm just saying. <laughs> no, but I think I think his his issue with the press uh, is you've heard a lot of our complaints about this is sort of what Lovett was getting at, which is not the partisan nature, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't like damn Fox News every day, you know. It was more like there is this tendency towards 
sensationalism, sensationalism and what's trivial and all the, the silly things, all, all the horse race stuff and all the silly stuff and not what's really substantive. And he's always like, well, challenge me where you disagree, where I'm doing wrong, but like, let's make it serious. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which also makes me wonder, like, do you think there's any truth to the gripes from the Trump administration that they're being covered completely unfairly? Like, is there, is there any, I mean, you know, there's this like... Kellyanne says she's walking around with wounds. <laughs> Did, did you guys see the tour de force interview between Jake Tapper and yeah. Kellyanne Conway? Yeah, amazing, amazing. Brian, Brian Stelter, we do not want Jake to know. Yeah, don't tell him we liked it, Brian. <laughs> he's, I just, I think he's gotten enough good press like the last two weeks. I mean, we all know how he is on email. <laughs> Brian, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, the good thing is that this podcast isn't, nobody listens to no it. One does, no one never does. gonna. Everything stays in this room. Uh, He's too busy keeping him honest. He, what's amazing in that interview is she tries to sort of make the point that, like, I, the, the thing that she kept going back right. to, I felt like, was veterans. Like, every, every question he'd, he'd ask her about, you know, whether the accusations about you know, uh, violence being an all-time high were not lies, and she'd somehow work the question back to veterans and say, but we're doing amazing work on veterans. Now, much respect to people who were doing actual work on right. veterans' issues. But, but it seems so, it was so manipulative, it, you know? It, it, she, I, I feel like journalism classes will study that interview, yeah. and in particular, her responses in decades to come. <laughs> because it is an amazing sort of, I don't even, I, soft shoe is putting it mildly, like she, she kind of like, she goes in and out of the actual like conversation. She's like um, she's like the liquid metal Terminator. In Terminator. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. The woman can walk through bars. <laughs> yes. Yes. And she just comes out the other side and she's like, "I'm a cop again." Oh my Gillian. A you cup and a little <laughs> red and blue yeah. hat. And then she's like, <laughs> <laughs> picks up a piece of herself off the floor, adds it back to the collective. It's incredible. You nailed it. You could tell in that interview that she was trying. She was like, I'm not going to appear defensive. I'm not going to appear wounded. I'm going to just try to be nice. I'm going to appeal to what Jake likes. I'm going to say complimentary things about right. CNN that may fly in the face of everything that my everything boss has right. said recently. I'm not going to answer any questions. It, yeah, I mean, so I guess this was all to a long-winded way of trying to get back to your original question, which is, like, is there stuff they're doing that we're not paying attention to? I mean, possibly. It's just that so much of the stuff that they're doing is so egregious and abnormal as we're talking about, you know, sort of right. institutions that I, I think those other things take up most of the... And by the way, we have been very clear. Crooked media, we do our media <laughs> criticism. But on the, on the battle between the media and the Trump administration, we have picked a side. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. like there are, you know, you can't paint a broad brush. I mean, there are great journalists right. holding them accountable every single day. In their defense, right, I, I went on like every Obama foreign trip for four years and never once was the main story coming out of that foreign trip. Anything we were talking about it was always something that like reverberated back from home. Right. So I get that frustration. But like you kind of got to just roll with it, guys. Like this is your job now. Well, if they call you and say, hey, we're corroborating some of these things in this dossier. What's your comment? And Sean Spicer says, CNN is fake news and I hate you. Please lose my number. Well, also, we were doing this on the way over here, Tommy. We were like, let's, let's practice doing the correct response from Sean Spicer, which could <laughs> yeah. have been no comment. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, even no, like, excuse me. we don't believe this to be true. Excuse right. me. Not like, CNN is fake news. The only, correct, news. the only correct response from Sean Spicer is, 
I am leaving. This is an out-of-office message. Oh. I'm in my car. <laughs> I'm in my car, and I'm driving until it runs out of gas, and then I'm going to get out and walk until I find water. Should we make our, <laughs> <laughs> should we make our official offer to Sean? Oh, by the way, yeah, Sean, who we know occasionally Friend listens, of the pod. Friend of the pod. <laughs> well, the second you are this. thrown under the bus, and then Trump backs the bus over you, and then, then gets some of his cronies on the bus, and then drives the bus to Mar-a-Lago, when you get yourself up, and you take a couple of days to look at your, you know, figure out what you, mistakes you made. Come have a podcast on. <laughs> What's the title? The title is the title. We will, we will give you a podcast called Pod Save Your Soul. And by Pod the way, we are, <laughs> we are, the ready. We are you that generous company. You had that share. We're attracting great talent. It's a burgeoning concern. <laughs> um, how, how do you think the media handled the campaign in, in, in 2016? Oh, my uh, God. That's a, that's a big question. Yeah, I was going to say, do we have any? <laughs> Let me unbutton my blazer for that. Um, I started out, I was still, I had a show on MSNBC when Donald Trump announced his candidacy. Yeah. And a lot of people, and, and that, I think, was the flourishing of the not taking Trump seriously enough right. moment. Um, and in, in all of our defense, like, it really didn't seem like he was going to end up he rode an elevator down his gold well, yes, stairs. He's right. afraid of stairs. I mean, it was a carnival. <laughs> he's a dotty old racist, and he's afraid of stairs. And he had ringers in the audience cheering right. for him. This yeah. was not normal politics. No. So, yes, I absolutely think we didn't take him seriously in the beginning. Once he started winning primaries, I think that there was a dawning realization. But to be honest, and you've seen this shift even in the mainstream media like the New York Times, the, uh, the, the sense, the feeling that you could say what the president or the president-elect is saying is a lie... That sort of blank, that that sort of definitive, That's like new Do- now. Donald yeah. Trump is lying about X, Y, and Z. That was not something that was done or said by anyone in the sort of mainstream media until very, very recently. Yeah. And I think there's been this sort of dawning realization that okay. By calling him out and fact-checking and saying these things are actually what they are, that's not being partisan. That's being truthful, and and that is a sort of a new development. And it's and it's. It's hard to be that angry because it does make sense that it took him winning because everyone did expect him to lose everyone, right? And yes. that it is something about him winning that helped a lot of people figure out how to react. But partly that's because he's president now and he should be treated differently. Yes. And I think when you talk about, I mean, this is the perennial question I think that I get asked a lot, which is, well, when are you guys going to stop covering his tweets so much? It's just the and, and, and the answer is probably never because never. these are probably the most truthful um, expressions of Donald Trump's inner, like, thinking about All being caps, the leader of the crazy free... crazy brain. Yeah. yeah. See you in court! I, I mean, or not. It's right. also just out. like, everyone's like, this tweet, this tweet about the EO is a distraction from this other thing that's also <laughs> terrible, which is actually a distraction from this other thing that's also terrible, which is a distraction from the original EO. It's like... Ugh. It's like a seven-layer burrito of distractions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, um, the, the answer is, like, everything is forever changed because of who this person is, yeah. and we're seeing that play out in the media. Do you think that the... Uh, how do you think the Clinton campaign could have handled the media better? Maybe oh. not roping them together during Fourth of July parades? <laughs> I'm kidding. I did uh, a fair amount of... Uh, some campaign... A fair amount of campaign coverage on the road with... As part of the circus uh, with, right. with Showtime. And um, it was super interesting because... the. The tr- you know, the Clinton campaign, I think, and this is a scar tissue uh, that has accrued over many years uh, as a result of the Clintons being in the spotlight, was so paranoid about bad press, right. um, which is something Donald Trump is not afraid of, apparently. Um, 
and the level of access, I mean, it was just so difficult to negotiate even the most basic things to the degree that it was kind of like, you're create, you're fa- bad will is being created here for no reason. It's not like there's a contentious interview and you're mad about what we said. We haven't even had the interview yet. Um, I think they should have been a lot more open and more accessible. Um, I think, you know, Hillary Clinton is a remarkably accomplished and very smart person. I don't think she's very comfortable in, you know, yeah. interfacing with the media. I think that, you know, they they could have, you know, they 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 probably should have been more aggressive and more open with a lot more. But yeah. until she comes on the pod, we are going to say that she was perfect. <laughs> um, I don't think that that's so, why she lost no, the election. But it, well, but it is this vicious cycle with them, right? Which is they're cautious towards the media because they'll say in the past the media has treated them yeah. unfairly and so then by being more cautious then they're treated more unfairly yeah you know, but you don't get keeps, to, I mean you don't get right. to do you don't get to do that forever but right. or, or even point. for any extended period of time if you want to be in politics as they say John as politics a, ain't it ain't bag. and these people are all our friends and like no one is trying to kick anyone after a very brutal campaign but I think the moment to me that crystallized like that there were some self created wounds was when she fainted and it shouldn't have been a big deal, but I think the sort of the time lag in terms of getting back to people, the fact that it seemed like only the bubble knew that she was even sick in, yeah. to begin with. Well, they and had to get and people person. didn't know where she was. <laughs> for, Body double for was her. in the can, yeah. And that took time. <laughs> you have to charge it. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what my role is supposed to be. Just, just let it play out. Let it play. You usually just let it go until the... Just, uh, let, him, just let him spin his wheels um, quietly in the middle. One last question, and then we'll let you go. Um, <laughs> what, is your, what is your biggest concern with political journalism today, and what, is your, what gives you the most optimism? Oh, man, that's a tough question. What is my biggest concern? Um... You know, I, I, uh, the bifurcation of the media landscape is really problematic to me. I think the most two most important people right now are probably Lachlan and James Murdoch because they are going to be running the show at Fox and they are, by all outside accounts, not as conservative as their father and could play a huge role in sort of me- ameliorating the break, I think, right. in, in large mm-hmm. mainstream media um, division. Uh, but it worries me that, and, and this isn't so much fake news versus real news, it's just that, you know, we have, we are increasingly developing a public appetite for two different lenses on the country, and that seems really dangerous because the implications of that, not just for media, but for governance, are pretty dire. You know, if, if people can't agree that this happened, then how yeah. do you legislate from there? Um, I'm most optimistic that... Um, podcasts like yours exist. (laughs) No, I mean, you know, this is not a butter up your hosting, but I think that there is, it is actually a butter up your hosting. Don't stop. I think it's really, you know, I'm writing this book, book plug, and one of the questions is like the sense of like, who are your people? And what I realize in this moment is my people are the people that care and are hitting send on the emails and who are pressing play on the podcast and t- tuning in to their DVR or actual live television because they want to stay informed and are equally informing the public. Mm-hmm. And it feels like this is a remarkably rich moment for the exchange of information and for people giving a damn about facts and news and the sort of plight of our fellow man. And that's awesome. Great Amen. answer. Great answer. Alex Wagner, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's this great stuff coming. Lots of great stuff. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference... Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Uh, should we take some questions? Yes, please. If you guys don't ask them, love it, we'll just talk. Wait, you guys, I did a visual joke. You guys ready for a visual joke? There it is. That's uh, a joke. Uh, for, uh, podcast people listening, because you didn't get tickets because you missed the boat. Uh, I was wearing a Pi Save America sweatshirt. <laughs> I took it off to reveal a Pi Save America t-shirt. <laughs> that is good radio right there. That's what <laughs> happened. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Uh, since we're in, in Brooklyn, uh, I'm going to keep it on brand and ask about Israel. Okay. Oh. Um, All you, Tom. Thanks. <laughs> So, uh, Israel is an issue that, um, that I tend to argue a lot about with a lot of my liberal, liberal friends, and um, I have a hard time convincing people or explaining to them that you can be pro-Israel and pro-two-state pro solution, but also anti-Netanyahu and anti-settlements. And is there a way... Is there a way that you think is a, is a good way to have that argument and explain that you can be for a Jewish state, but also against some of the things that are going on? Very good, very hard question. Um, I think that, you know, listen, a lot, a lot of people had a very emotional response to President Obama's decision to abstain on the UN vote uh, criticizing settlements, despite the fact that decades of presidents and administrations have had as U.S. policy in opposition to settlement construction. And I think what people don't necessarily understand is that with respect to creating settlements, there are certain areas that are called within the blocks that are likely to be swapped in two-state solution, right? So the Palestinian territory will go to the Israelis. Some Israeli territory will go to the Palestinians. And those and are close to the border. Those are close to the border. Those are understood to sort of be likely to happen in any sort of solution. What's happening now is construction deep, deep, deep into Palestinian, what would be Palestinian territory, to the point where 
it makes it unlikely that they could actually have a contiguous state where you could travel from point A to point B and actually sort of govern the entire thing. Um, my argument to those people would be, if you care deeply about Israel, if you want it to not just exist but thrive, um, you want to resolve this issue sooner than later because it has been such a source of tension for so long, and you want a viable Palestinian authority with a working government, with institutions, with a population that is employed and paying taxes and occupied and not you know, sort of this disaffected youth bulge that you see across so many places that is a hotbed for extremism, right? And so you want this to work out um, and, and you want a two-state solution to occur and for them to have a lasting peace agreement to remove that sort of irritant from the relationship and to, and to help both sides move on and onto bigger things and figure out a way to work together. And so I think Obama got in trouble for saying this in, in 2006 or 2007. It's like, you can be pro-Israel, uh, but not necessarily pro-Likud, which is the conservative party. And since that time, Netanyahu, every time he's had to reconstitute his government, has lurched further to the right, right? Suddenly you have like Avigdor Lieberman, who said some pretty abhorrent things as the foreign minister. And you've got Naftali Bennett, who denies that uh, there should ever be a two-state solution. It's like these people are getting pulled into the cabinet. And I think, ultimately, if you want young people to move to Israel and, and you know, it to be seen as like a thriving democratic state, which I think people believe it to be, this like beacon of hope in a, in a tough region, then you want these sides to come together um, and, and figure out a path forward. So that's a really oh. fucking long answer. That was long. I feel like I'm hot save the world over here. <laughs> <laughs> that was a plug. That was it was good. Yeah, it was nerding out. Right it was good. That's what, what we do here. Hi. Hi. Um, my question, I, you guys talk a lot about um, the 2018 elections, but I know that we have these a few special elections that are coming up um, in 2017, and I wondered if you could talk about any sort of hope that we have in those elections and what we should be doing here in Brooklyn to uh, help in those cases. What's going on there? Hmm. Compost. Uh, what's that? No, I'm um, <laughs> Yeah, no, look, I, it, it is... It has been common throughout history, usually in the off-year elections right after a presidential election, uh, if the president of power isn't doing so well and maybe has a pretty bad approval rating like Donald Trump does, um, those are pretty prime opportunities for the other party to sweep into power. So those are very ripe targets. Uh, I believe usually it's a governor's race in Virginia mm -hmm. um, and a Governor's race somewhere else. Jersey, Jersey, Jersey. Jersey. Of course, uh, Mayor De Blasio is running for re-election here. I don't think he'll have any uh, too, too stringent Republican opposition here. But um, I think in Jersey and Virginia, yeah, like we'll need, especially in a state like Virginia. I think that will be a fairly, that'll be a very competitive race. Uh, Virginia, of course, in 2016 went very, very blue. So there's a huge opportunity to keep the governor's seat there. So I do think that, yeah, volunteering. Uh, donating to the candidate of your choice, that's going to be a primary in Virginia. Uh, Tom Perriello and Northam are the two. Yeah. Tom Perriello right. fans. fans. I, think, uh, I think we know who the friend of the pot is. <laughs> <laughs> I also think those elections, um, those elections are looked at as barometers of yeah. the mood of the country, and that's a great way to scare the hell out of everybody that's up in 2018. And suddenly those people are running from Donald Trump uh, in ways that allow us just some space in terms of protecting ACA and doing some of the other things. Yeah, and it's not, yeah, it's not just the win, it's like the size of the win. If Democrats win by a big deal, win by a big margin right. in this November, that's like the earliest signal to, you know, to the Trump administration that, that they're in trouble, that maybe they don't have these magical powers, you know. 
to tweet about it. That's the answer. Yeah. Tweet. <laughs> uh, yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I think people should say their name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was your name? I probably was about to. Hi, my, my name is Zach. Hey, Zach. Zach. Okay, great. Perfect. Great. We're caught up. <laughs> and, and I'm Casey. Hi. Hi. Um, so I do have a question. Before I get to it, I just wanted to say that because of your podcast, I have gone to my first protest, and I've called multiple yes. senators. Yes. And I've got a whole bunch of monthly donations set up. And I literally have never done that in my entire life, and it was entirely from listening to you guys, so thanks. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you. That is uh, great to hear. Misty. Okay, so here's my question, and it's a little bit to you, Pavs, because I am a Holy Cross graduate as well. Uh, ah, even better. Yeah. Uh, um, Crusader. So I'm not as, listening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I have a bachelorette party coming up with a whole bunch of... Okay, I'm listening, I'm listening. <laughs> um, We're going to cut this out for Emily. a whole bunch of Trump supporters. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. <laughs> the air just went right out of the balloon there. No, I'm like still very into what this question is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm into what go, we're gonna, what we're gonna talk about. Yeah. Right. So I think this is a large question that a lot of people have, which is how are we supposed to communicate with these? I mean, I'm I'm really every day, half the day, I'm filled with primal rage at anybody who's a Republican, and then the other half of the day, I remind myself, you know that I need to be more understanding and we need to reach out and maybe I don't need to destroy my friendships with politics and, and on and on. And I'm just wondering what you guys think about the best yeah. way to talk to somebody who voted for Donald Trump. Good question. Well, yeah. where's the par- where is this? Where's the bachelor party? Nashville. Bachelor party. That's right. Sorry, where is it? Nashville. Nashville. That makes sense. Yeah. I think the first thing you don't want to do is stereotype Nashville. <laughs> I'm not... I don't know about Nashville, but I get picking Nashville. <laughs> Wait, but no, this is, I, I, are these be clear, are, though, these are not like Rust Belt, you know, steel workers or something. These are girls that went to Holy Cross. Right. No, look, this is right towards, it was like a month before the election. Yeah. And um, my fiance was like, woke up panicked. And she's like, one of my best friends from high school, she's from Cincinnati. Careful. One of my best friends from high school, just, I, I heard from another friend that she might vote for Donald Trump. And it was like panic in our household. You know, morning. She's like, well, I'm texting her now. What do I do? Write the texts. Let's, let's figure this out. And I just sort of started asking We didn't you, get like, her. <laughs> we did not get her, no. She's still coming to the wedding. Um, for now. Um, and Hillary lost Ohio. Coincidence? <laughs> Great speechwriter. Couldn't get one girl. <laughs> <laughs> I will say <laughs> failure. Um, it is a great exercise to go through because when we talk like this, we make a lot of assumptions about the audience, right? And we do this to each other all the time. Yes, someone's not so much of a straight shooter respected on both sides. Oh, oh I got oh, him. Oh. <laughs> anyway, no, so I started by asking, like, why, why do you like him? What are the issues that you care about, right? Like, just very basic stuff, right? Like, don't go to, like, did you see that tweet that he just did? He's crazy, you know? Like, um, now, the problem is, a, a lot, like, with her, it was, 
well, you know, Hillary like killed all those people in Benghazi. Um, and so then I had to go through the entire explanation of Benghazi. And then I like texted Tommy and was like, give me some more Benghazi facts. Because you, still, like, you still have to start Didn't going back. Didn't get her. Didn't get it. You still Spent have to a start. day on it. <laughs> you still have to start. Now, here's the thing. I think in an election, this is tougher than when someone's president. Because when someone becomes president, it is just them. And there is no other person. There's no other candidate, right? And so we, for better or worse, uh, we judge presidents on their performance. We don't judge them in opposition. So there's no more Hillary Clinton to complain about anymore. There's no more Democrat opposition to complain about anymore. And I think you should ask them, like, how do you think about how he's done, right? Like, what, is, is he doing everything that you voted for, right? And, and what are those issues? And then start going, going issue by issue. I think on someone like Trump, ultimately, <laughs> ultimately you are going to want to fight him on the actual substance of the issues, right? Like, just jumping right to he's completely crazy and out of his mind, blah, blah, blah. Like, you can get there, um, but I think you want to go issue by issue. I do think the incompetence is the, is the uh, exception there, right? Like, I think no one, no one from either party wants an administration that seems completely incompetent and out of control and chaotic, right? And so to the extent that they continue to uh, roll out these executive orders like this as poorly as they did with the, with the ban and stuff like that, I think that's going to be an issue of weakness for him regardless of what party you're for. Like, maybe you're a Republican, but you don't want a president who's just incompetent all the time. So I think that's a big issue. But then I would actually I would go issue by issue and actually try to debate the substance, you know? Are they drinkers? <laughs> <laughs> what would you do of it? I, 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 I really get to... I don't know if you want... I mean... I don't know if I want my friend at my bachelorette party being like, I have some political things I want to talk about at this strip club. <laughs> so I'd be like, maybe like at brunch the next day, you can like kind of bring it up. And I would also do it in the, like the language of feelings. Like, here's how Trump makes me feel. Um, because that's how, like, that's just like therapy stuff um, that you get from Dr. Kathy. But, um, <laughs> uh, no, but, but uh, I, I think it's a threshold question as to whether or not you actually want, like, you should go on your bachelorette party with your friends and not really worry about it because there's enough people worrying about it all the time. Like, we're all worrying about Trump all the time. We're dream people are dreaming about Trump. Like, you can go to Nashville and just, like, forget that Trump exists. She wants to but persuade. Wait, do you want to persuade? I'm sorry. That's do you want to bring it up? No, she, she said she wanted to know people. what to do. She wanted to know how she should feel about it. What should she do? be right. You know? Well, I know you're right. We're well, all I know, right. But I want... <laughs> We've been right the whole time. I, I, we were, we were incredibly smug and sanctimonious before the election. Because you've seen it's really uh, gone away. You've seen it's really gone away. I have an um, obligation so, to be smug for the country. And so, like, <laughs> to keep spirits up. We, I think, like, I, I did a lot of like soul searching over after that, and you know, it doesn't always come through that I think about these things. But I do think, you know, our friend Anna Marie Cox um, is a reporter for MTV News, really smart woman, like hilarious. But she had this simple recommendation, which is like, when you're talking to these people, don't try to, don't approach it as a debate. Just be like, why do you feel the way you feel? Yeah. And I yeah. think that's a really smart way where then someone asks you why you feel how you feel. And then it's a conversation. It's not like, a, you need to put the EO on the thing. Right. And so I think that'll get to a better place. Yeah. Or do what Love has said. I'll let you know how it goes. So thank oh, you. Please, tweet at us. <laughs> And thank you for doing all that stuff. And you don't have to bring up the politics of the bachelor party unless you like really feel like it's a good... whether I can resist, right? Right, right that's yeah. true, right. that's true. That's where the drinking comes that. in. I get that, I get that. Yes, sir. <laughs> Dan? Uh, so I, uh, I'm a lawyer. I, I represent a client in Iraq. 
Um, I've got a call with him tomorrow morning. Uh, you represent a client, what? In, in Iraq. Oh, in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So oh. he was a translator. Um, worked for the U.S. Marines uh, in in Fallujah. You know, during the worst of the worst fighting there. You know, and he's he's trying to uh, get a visa uh, to immigrate with his family to the U.S. And you know, we've been working for for over a year. Um, you know, obviously, it's it's tough to go through that whole process. And now I I basically set up a call to talk to him. You know, and. You know, respond to what's been going on over the last few weeks, and, and I don't know what really to tell him. You know, except that maybe you know there, there's going to be an exception for for U.S. interpreters over there. And um, uh, so, so I have really two questions. I mean, one, you know, what what would you tell him? You know, to reassure him. Uh, and and two, you know, if if you oppose the EO, you know, what's the most effective way to work against it? You know, what what would you recommend? I mean, I would tell him that, <laughs> I'd tell him it's 99.9% .9 of the country thinks that's the worst fucking thing they've ever heard. That we would tell someone who translated for our soldiers in Iraq, and now we're going to abandon them. It's, it's immoral, it's wrong on every level. I don't, I, I, you know, we, there's a special um, type of visa for individuals from Iraq who did exactly this. And I, I have to think, I have to think that Congress or someone will fix this on behalf of individuals like him because th there's, there's no planet where that person shouldn't be, not just, should be welcomed into the country, not allowed, right? Um, they did a lot for us. And, and, you know, and this speaks to like the broader stupidity of this, of this law because you know, we have people in Afghanistan doing similar work. We have places, we, we have the CIA all over the world that goes to people and tells them if you help us with information, we'll bring you and your family to the United States. And in these seven countries, that's no longer an option. And in every other country, people think um, that we're full of it. Um, so that's a huge, huge problem. And it, like, it bothers me to my core that this is happening. And I forget your second question. Well, I I think, my the second question is what to do. And I think you have one of those stories that will yeah. help change people's minds. So you should tell that story. And you should uh, get Alex find, back. Find, get at, where'd Alice go? <laughs> She's a journalist. She hasn't, we're just three guys. Um, uh, Tanya, <laughs> help us. Um, but uh, that's a really important story and that stories about individuals like that change people's minds. You know, uh, when it's not a coincidence that when the ACLU uh, brought their first lawsuit in the moments after this EO was filed, it was for a translator who uh, did exactly what your client was doing and people with families and, and decent good people who deserve their chance to come to America as we promised them. Um, so I think there's something we all can do, which is protest at airports and, and, and keep up the momentum and go to these town halls and remind people how wrong this is, and, and they've certainly felt the pressure on that. But you particular, in particular should find ways to get that story in front of the I media mean, because it's really important. If you can get this guy on film, we'll put it on our website, we'll tweet it, we'll go nuts and tell everyone we know about this because like, this is exactly the kind of thing I care about. Yeah. Deeply. So, yeah, please. Um, I, will, I will also say that the reason this is one of the reasons this is so important is I read a story a couple weeks ago uh, an Iraqi was being interviewed and uh, about the EO and she said you know for a long time I wondered whether America the United States cared about Muslims and then this happened and I saw the protests and I saw the reaction and I realized they do you know and so like that that actually matters you know like the, the scenes that we're projecting to the rest of the world and how we respond to this administration is going to make a difference yep. in the opinion of the rest of the world. And so even if all those protests 
don't change the executive order because they rewrite it in a more, in a, in a more legal way and they can get it done. Um, us continuing to resist and to protest and to speak out and to show the rest of the world that we believe in a different kind of America is going to be very important in the, in the years to come. God, that pisses me off. And, yeah, and, and just also, we joke and we try to keep our spirits up, and we do a great job at that. <laughs> um, but we're in the middle of a national emergency. Donald Trump is a national emergency. This is what it feels like. That's every day. You can still get a burrito. You know, we can still go about our business. But we're in the middle of a crisis, and Donald Trump presents a crisis. And you know, we've talked about this on the podcast, but it's a combination of malevolence and incompetence, and it is dangerous, and it's going to hurt people, and it's going to kill people. And uh, it's going to be a long, hard fight, and we have to fight every day. That's it. I don't know. That's it. That's it. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Bob. Uh, love it. My girlfriend's here, and she might love you more than she loves me. So uh, well, I have some bad news for her. <laughs> <laughs> and some good news for you. <laughs> Look at Tommy John ad over here. Um, in any case, you guys have had uh, each of, or uh, many of the uh, chairs, uh, or nominees for chair of the DNC come on the pod. Um, I was wondering if individually you guys would be willing to endorse any of them tonight. And secondly, just... Chuck Todd uh, over here. So, so <laughs> I, I was wondering, we, uh, you guys had Mayor Pete on uh, last week, and um, I was wondering if you guys thought there was any credence to the theory that he represents sort of a nice middle between the Tom Perez establishment and the Keith Ellison kind of super progressive wing. That's funny that that's the... I didn't know that was That's the just thought what out I there. Away. Oh, yeah. um, I'm going to give the super politician-y answer on this one. Um, and I, I've been thinking about it for a while, actually. I just, if Perez or Ellison or Buttigieg, see, I say his last name now. Boot Edge Edge. Buttigieg. 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 Um, any one of them would make an excellent DNC chair. I, I really do believe that. And I, I'm like, I was impressed with all of them. Like, I've known Perez for a while. He was like one of our first guests on Keeping It 1600, so I really like Tom. Like, Ellison has sparked some real enthusiasm among a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters and a lot of other people in the party, and he has a good story to tell. And, so I think, and then I didn't know anything about Pete, and then he came on the podcast, and the, what I liked most about Pete is that he talks like a normal human being. And this has been my hobby horse, especially as a, as a speechwriter, is that, and Mayor de Blasio was talking about this, which is like, there's no rules anymore, and all the, the rule books can thrown out because of Trump. And one of the good parts about that is, um, you shouldn't, if you're a politician, you shouldn't go out there and figure out like, okay, I gotta stay in my talking points that are what my pollster gave me, and he said that this issue's right, and this line is right, and like, we do all these things to candidates as advisors and consultants to try to keep them on the right message and say the exact right words, and it comes off as phony most of the time. And I think most, most politicians just started talking like they have conversations with everyday people in their life. They would be a lot better off. And I, don't, and I think that was a problem. I honestly think that was a problem with Hillary in the race. I thought that was a problem with most of the other Republicans that weren't Donald Trump. Um, it's a problem with many politicians who stay in Congress for too long, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think when I, heard, when I heard Mayor Pete talk, I was like, this is someone who's speaks like a normal human being, is refreshing, who doesn't sound like he spent his whole life in Washington. Endorsement. Um, yeah, no, I, so I think, like, uh, you know, I, I find myself not feeling like I know enough to make a decision, in part because I almost feel like it's impossible to know what the right choice is right now. 
um, and that's a problem. But you know, and I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to Dan, who is very smart and who, who, who is a huge fan of of, of Perez. Um, uh, at the same time, I'm also sympathetic to the argument that there's an incredible groundswell of people who want to know that the Democratic Party is listening. And rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, they've basically drawn a line in the sand that said it has to be Keith Ellison or it has to be someone other than Perez because he represents the establishment. I think it's actually really unfair uh, to Tom Perez, who's being yeah. uh, uh, tagged uh, with uh, kind of owning the mistakes of the DNC, which is not really something he was doing. You know, like um, if Barack Obama screwed up state party building, which we can acknowledge that, you know, that was one of We're in of the wilderness. Tom Perez didn't have anything to do with that. Right. And so, <laughs> Tom like, Perez was the most progressive cabinet member we have, you know? So I, I, like, I really like uh, Mayor Pete. Um, I actually I like, the, I like Keith Ellison's uh, um, rhetoric and the, 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 his record on getting out the vote. Um, I think Tom Perez is one of the smartest guys who had a lot of really great things to say when he talked to us. I think the most important thing is that uh, we can't fall apart over this. You know, I think there's a chance Perez is going to win. And when he wins, I really am going to be very annoyed with people who are like, the Democratic Party didn't listen on out. No, it doesn't matter. You lost. But, but, or but, if Ellison wins, people being like, oh, this the, is, we're, now the party's moved too, too far extreme, to the left, you know. Or Mayor Pete wins and everybody's happy. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, am I, I for Mayor Pete? I don't care. <laughs> I think you are. You both are. I, He's I, also gay. Really? Great. Yeah, he um, says, like, I, I think he says I'm a gay veteran. Yeah, he does. And I, people want to add an, they don't want to just be gay. They want to put something after it. <laughs> like straight shooter? And I'm You're just a gay. Podcast gay. Host. I'm a gay podcast host. I'm just gay. Gay veteran. <clears throat> Tommy. I feel like I don't know. I don't, I feel, I will, I'm happy to, to weigh in if I have a strong feeling on it. I just want someone who's going to run an organization really effectively and raise money and recruit the hell out of candidates and, like, that starts in this room, right? If you guys have friends who could like run for local anything, like go to your town, figure out what board seats are open, just do it. It's probably like empty slates. But um, there are. I, I just want someone effective that's gonna find great people and raise a ton of money and help us as a pretty good messenger. And like, I'm kind of agnostic as to who that is. Like, I, I, I sort of shared John's frustration with some of the interviews we were like, it's, it's us. We're not it's also, reporters, like talk normal. It's also, say something normal. The DNC is like an operations job, it really, it's really hard to know who's going to do a great job right now. Honestly, I think we just, they can all make their claims and they can all uh, make their best argument and, you know, may the best person win. But it's really a turnaround job that someone's going to have to go down and do some deep yeah. rebuilding of this party and actually, like, figure out what the DNC is for, you know? And it can't just be a fundraising operation. Um, it can't just be a, uh, um, you know, a, th a thing that exists to do big, giant fundraisers in L.A. and New York and... And we have to figure out, like, the Democratic Party is broken. It is a broken institution. It has failed us. Failed us at every level. And I think all of these candidates, it's what? It's true. We elected Barack Obama two times. Twice, like, no big deal. Yeah. Well, you know, and, not so not no, the Democratic level. Party didn't do that. I mean, the Barack Obama organization did that. Barack Obama did that. The Democratic Party has let us down in a lot of ways, and we've let the Democratic Party down in making an organization that can compete uh, across the country. And, and, and I think no one person is going to solve this. No one term of the DNC is going to solve this. We have, I don't... It's a lot of work. There's a big, this is going to be rough. Levitt's going to go turn on his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Danny. Oh. Hey, Danny. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Friend of the host. Friend is a very loose term. <laughs> I have a uh, three-part question. Oh, God. <laughs> so feel free to answer the uh, part which is most convenient. <laughs> 
outside the evolution of crooked media and love it shamelessly selling t-shirts, what do you think the long-term, perhaps positive effects of a Trump administration will be 10, 20 years down the road? Part Oof. two, what is your favorite slash most inspiring Trump tweet? <laughs> Part three, if you were to be characters on SNL, who would best play each of you? <laughs> Love it. This is All right. born, you're born for this let's question. Let's do. Let's go. Let's take it from the bottom. I'd play myself. <laughs> uh, um, to compliment Trump's tweets for a second, I think if he weren't such a liar and a racist, we'd kind of recognize that he's funny. He is funny and he is charming. It sucks but it is true, and, I, and I, we don't normally see it, and I'm not, ex you know, uh, we, he is what he is, um, but that tweet where he says, you know, Happy New Year, especially all the haters and the losers, like, <laughs> that's hilarious, that he's funny, like, he's a funny guy, yeah. so I will compliment him there. Uh, positive effects of Donald Trump being president of the United States, I'm not gonna, 10, 20 years, we got the election wrong, it was like two days away, um, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the t-shirts again. What did you say? I just didn't want you to bring up the t-shirts again. These t-shirts at crookedmedia.com slash crooked, where they're only on sale till Monday. My work is done. Thanks. Act now. Thank Act you. now. Uh, no, I, I would say, honestly, I, I think the, the single... Um, Donald Trump is forcing us to go back to first principles, um, what we believe in and what we don't, what matters to us and what doesn't. Um, 100,000 people tuned in to listen to the uh, oral arguments in front of the Ninth Circuit. Um, what Alex said about people subscribing to newspapers and paying attention. Um, there is something happening in this country that's really inspiring, and, um, and, and we know the protests matter, and we know uh, that people going to the airport matters. You know, we joke, protest is a new brunch. Like, um, <laughs> coming soon to the media, comes some merch. <laughs> Would you guys buy that t-shirt? Okay, okay. All right. <laughs> but I think, that, I think that Donald Trump is forcing us, is, is, is really putting the less left versus right, but pro-democratic institutions and norms and someone who has absolutely no respect for them. And I think that will have yeah. a positive long-term effect. No, it's, it's, the, it's the engagement, right? And it's also, I think, I, I've always been troubled by the view that politics is purely transactional, that you give a politician your vote on election day and then you walk away and that's it. Um, and there was sometimes, I think, that that frustrated us when Barack Obama was in the White House and everyone was like, why didn't Obama fix everything on his own, you know? And it's because uh, a democracy requires everyone to be involved and engaged. And um, there are a lot of people that are paying attention right now because of a bad thing, because Donald Trump's president. But if that leads to increased engagement and activism, uh, and people just paying attention more to the news and to politics on every level, then that's going to be good for this country. Well, one more quick thing. Uh, um, Donald Trump really did expose a lot of unpopular dogmas inside the Republican Party. Um, you know, you, it's not a coincidence that Donald Trump is sort of talking about ensuring everybody and Paul Ryan's going on the morning shows and saying, no, repeal and replace. We're still going to repeal and replace it. I mean, Paul Ryan's agenda of tax cuts, deregulation, trade, those things don't have as big of a constituency, and, 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 and exposing the fact that these voters weren't as conservative as, as Paul Ryan thought they were ha, will be good. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Good answers. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, my name's Indy. Um, so I live in New York, obviously, and it's a pretty liberal place. I mean, we get meals from blueapron.com, uh, we wear Indochino suits. Look at that. <laughs> 
this is the, in the pod version. This is where they're going to do the segue. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> we did a great blue apron read today, earlier. You know, and me and my friends have been, you know, at various sporting events with tickets from SeatGeek. Uh, <laughs> and the thing that keeps me up at night on my Casper mattress is how can we help, you know, people in the more battleground states or they are in the purple states that you know aren't as necessarily as liberal other than sending them a bouquet from books.com that says <laughs> keep up the fight. That's or true. some Sherry's Berries. Come from, you come from digital media? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll send them Sherry's Berries. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like that, was, under, a, under, that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> what do we do for people in the purple states? Why don't you take a shot at it? Because I, f- I failed to convince the uh, bachelorette party. I think, okay, I think the, the biggest thing, I, I think this is a hard question. I think the, I think the most important thing, I think the, the lesson of this big popular vote win, I think the popular vote win is heartening, right? Because it does mean that Donald Trump doesn't have a mandate, but it also should force us to ask questions like, why did all the people vote in the wrong place? Um, like, if we had buses and we were lying, we should have put them in the right place. <laughs> um, why did all these dead people vote in New York? <laughs> Completely useless. No, but um, I think that... Um, uh, I think that we made a lot of assumptions, and, and I think it pains me to say this, but I think the single smartest point about the 2016 election was made by Kellyanne Conway. Uh, straight shooter, respected on all sides. Um, one time. Um, uh, was there's a difference between what offends people and what affects people, and we focused way too much on what offends people and not enough on what affects people because... Uh, we, were, we, made a, we, made, we were right when we were talking about, you know, Don, this is not who we are. You know, Donald Trump is, you know, disrespects people. He makes fun of people. He's a bully. He's the wrong kind of person. He's corrupt. He's everything we said about him was true. But we didn't make the next step, which was, and this is why it's going to hurt you. This is why it's going to make your life worse. And the bad news is, I think that cost us the election. The good news is, when you're president, you can't lie about what's actually going on in people's bank accounts, with their yeah. health care, uh, on their roads, in their schools, et cetera, it's which is why Betsy DeVos broke through, which is why these protests are breaking through. It's a question of focus, though, because it is going to take relentless focus on those issues, and those are not always the sexy issues that break through. Right. Um, but th- to peel those voters away from him, it is we have to talk about how he affects people's lives. And even, even the conflict of interest stuff, it's like you have to not just say that he has all these conflicts of interest and that he's using the White House to enrich himself. You have to make the next step and say he's using it to enrich himself and thus making your life worse in this way, right? And so you have to constantly connect those dots for people that this president whom you elected because you thought he might change Washington for the better and improve your life for the better is not actually doing so. And that's it. That's the end of the You know, it's, it's not a lot of he's crazy, he's this or that. It's just he didn't improve your life and he said he was going to. Yeah, it's incredibly galling, right, when Kellyanne Conway or Sean Spicer or Donald Trump himself is like, you guys said I should give my taxes. I didn't, and people didn't care. And we can get angry about that, or we can be challenged by that and figure out, well, if this is important, why, isn't, why doesn't it matter? Why didn't it cost him everything? Why didn't he lose by 15 points? And I think it's making it so crystal clear that this person is lying to you, and it's going to hurt you. I yeah. said that already. And it was worth saying to us. Thank you. Thanks. Claire? Uh, and until about 12 weeks ago when my coworker Jen came in and told me about your podcast, I didn't know very much about politics. So um, my question is, since he's been elected and now since he's been in office, we keep hearing he's breaking this law, Kellyanne Conway and her thing, the Russia 
whatever, uh, the dossier, all these <laughs> things, right? And it's breaking the Constitution, it's breaking the law, but the only lawsuit that's really come up so far is the one with the EO on the ban. And I'm wondering, is there, are there other lawsuits that are in process and we're going to see those soon? Or is there a timeline here? Or are we waiting on the Republicans and are we screwed? Some of these issues, <laughs> like, yeah, you're, it's a very good question because you're like, if she broke the law on TV, why isn't that a thing? It feels like that should be easy. Um, some of this is, some of these are like, you know, you have you know, historic coward Jason Chaffetz who refuses to do oversight. Right, like that's one problem. So we have to win back the House so we could do real oversight and to get subpoena power and hold hearings and like do something about that. You will see like Norm Eisen and Richard Painter and those guys continue to put forward, I think, sort of ethics-related lawsuits. I think the ACLU will continue to challenge things that they view as unjust and unreasonable. And then with Flynn, you know, that seems like that could be some kind of FBI investigation. So there's like, there's sort of a whole bucket of legal issues swirling that could be damaging to him at any point along the way. It's just not clear when or where or how. So we can't bank on that, I guess is my point. And we can't rely on or hope for that. We have to win this as a messaging fight. Um, and maybe some of that stuff will spring up at a, at a useful time, but it's probably going to take a while. So we're kind of screwed. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> no, I mean, we, we do have to. We ha I mean, we win the, win the battle. Box. We have oversight power again. Um, some of these, you know, the shorthand is, oh, she obviously broke the law, but it is a little more murky than that, right? Yep. And, or it re requires an investigation or, I mean, anything that requires the, their own attorney general, to, Jeff Sessions, to get involved, that's not happening. Um, and most things that require the Republican Congress to get involved, that's not happening, right? So there's, when there's an instance that's like clear cut that they broke the law and someone can sue, they can do that. But a lot of them are more murky, like Tommy was saying. Yeah, and I think that also like Kellyanne Conway making one offhand, com like Kellyanne Conway making one offhand comment about how she go buy shoes, like we don't want to live in a country where she goes to jail for that. We want to live in a country where she gets censured for that and embarrassed for that and criticized for that and maybe fired for that. Um, maybe some great shoes. Period. <laughs> period. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hello, boys. Oh, hey, Hello. Ronnie. It's Ronnie Cho. Hey, Ronnie. Hey. Uh, it's so an first, Obama field organizer from way back in the day. Yeah, way back. Iowa 2007. Uh, first time, long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to say thanks uh, as someone who considers you guys like a big brother. Thank you for doing everything you're doing to give us a voice. Um, so there's that. That's the end of the buttering up the hosts. Uh, secondly, as our old boss, Barack Obama, who's still the most popular public political figure on earth, what is, um, yeah, what is the most effective and important thing he does for this generation uh, to help bring us back from the dark side? What can he do to, um, to inspire us again? And what can he do to empower all of us to believe in hope and change once more? Um, I mean, I think that the, the mission of the Obama Foundation is going to be uh, civic engagement, which is you know, the more boring term for getting people active, getting people involved. Um, he said that he specifically wants to focus on young people, and he wants to make sure that this generation isn't cynical. And the battle against cynicism in public life, which is the battle he took up when he announced his candidacy, as you know. Um, 10 years ago today. 10 years ago today, Springfield, Illinois. Um, that, that fight continues even more today. And when I say cynicism, it's, it's not that, you know, 
when you get involved in politics, sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes things aren't going to turn out the way you want. Sometimes you're going to get Donald Trump as president. That doesn't mean that it's not worth trying. That doesn't mean that the fight isn't worth it and that you shouldn't continue the fight. Right? Yeah. And so I think if he, I think during the, like in the foundation, he will probably use his, you know, use his voice and he'll speak out on this, but he'll also try to lift up a lot of the voices and a lot of the young people out there who are doing incredible things, who are getting involved in incredible ways and being involved in public life. And I think that will be, I think that will be his legacy in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. He's, he's going back to his community organizing Don't jump in before I jump in. I want to ask a question. Can I say a thing? Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> To John's point, like, he cannot save us, right? Like, he, he's not going to be president again, I don't think. Um, but I saw him in D.C. last week, and he is literally tanned, rested, and ready. So, like, the guy is going to be around. He's going to be inspiring people that work for us to run for office. He is going to be, like, fighting for things he believes in. So, you know, I think we should all take inspiration from, from what he did, what he accomplished, who he is, the way he conducted himself in office. And remember that, like... Yes, we were looking at this orange monster, but like there's that ideal still out there, and like that's what we all should aspire to. I, I hope the takeaway everyone got from that was I saw Barack Obama last week, <laughs> and because um, that's what I heard, um, and I think that was the point, isn't it? Uh, but uh, uh, I was just gonna say, like, I, I guess the, my question would be, do you think it's September 2018? <laughs> it's September 2018. Is he campaigning for House candidates? Is he raising money? Is he giving stump speeches? I think he's campaigning. I think he'll campaign in 2018. I mean, I don't know this, but I, I mean, it's not. I mean, Bill. I I'm, I'm asking questions like when I saw him in DC, and I was like, "What are you doing in 2018?" Like, <laughs> like, "What are you? Where are you in October?" What do you want me to 7th, do? <laughs> I'll be in Ohio. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, me too." Yeah. I mean, I I got into politics in 2004 in the Kerry campaign, and I remember Bill Clinton was out there all the time. Yeah, you know, and so. I think that he's a very young ex-president, and he'll. All right. I think he'll be out there. So campaigns could be prove me wrong, but run for office, Ronnie. You got it. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Hey, uh, my name's John, and I have a question about uh, the idea that you guys were talking about on the podcast yesterday of this long-term trend that Obama believes in toward equality, if you look at the scope of American history, and toward progress on progressive issues. Uh, I take the more pessimistic view that I feel like there are major fundamental changes happening to how society functions, particularly around the internet, that have produced Donald Trump, for example. Obama has said that he believes that Trump is a product of the internet, and I'm wondering if you feel like the internet or other changes that are unprecedented in American history are changing or could be changing this idea of a narrative of trajectory uh, toward equality, toward progress on progressive issues that has been kind of steadfast? Or do you feel like that holds up, that continues, nothing that is happening today could be modifying that trajectory in a way that is worth recognizing? It's a great question. Did I you think listen to yesterday's I, yet? <laughs> Part of it. What? I started it. We just we weren't on it. I'm not sure what, it, what you guys talked yeah, about. Yeah, love to just listen to pod. <laughs> <laughs> the Thursday pod. I think uh, I I see technology as more of a tool than anything else. And so I think yes, the internet helped give rise to Donald Trump. It also helped give rise to Barack Obama. It helped give rise to the protests we're seeing. It helped, you know, like I think it can be used for good or for ill. Um, I think, you know, when Obama uses that quote, the arc of the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He would always add in his stump speech, but it doesn't bend on its own. You have to put your two hands on the arc and bend it, right? And so I think there is no inevitable march towards progress, 
but there is the history this country has shown that when people are engaged and they are fighting and they are paying attention, that good things happen, that we move forward, right? And so I do think that, that that's the lesson that I've taken from history, despite all the backlash, all the struggle, all the pain that people have gone through, and, and we shouldn't wash over that. I mean, we, we say this all the time. People are, people are going to get hurt during this Trump presidency. It's not, it's not like some happy story where Donald Trump wins and then we're all engaged and everything's wonderful again. Like, there will be bad things that happen. We will lose fights. And every once in a long while, things do get pretty bad for like 500 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, I think about this too, and it freaks me out because, you know, even like, a, even internationally, I, Dave Petraeus was like, you know, we have this, like, we have this world order we've sort of been the leader of for however many sec- decades, uh, but we didn't get there by accident, and you can't kind of abandon it and come back four years later and be like, oh, can we get the thing back where we were kind of leading everywhere? So, you know, it's <laughs> fragile, and we need to really fight for the things we believe, which like, gets me back to the question about this guy stuck in Iraq. You know, it's like we need to, I think, project an image as an opposition that constantly shows the things we believe in. And, like, I, the Internet's a powerful force, but there have been powerful forces along the way. I think we're resilient and can adapt to that. But I think it's like a, it's a fundamental adhering to values and things that are bigger and timeless that will kind of help us navigate this thing. And I think, like, Mayor de Blasio made a good point, which is, like, Trump's not magic. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not a magic, not magic person. He's not magic. He's just a dotty old racist who accidentally became president. And, 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 he, lost, and he lost the popular vote. And, and, look, I think there are big forces that made Trump possible. But little things had to go wrong for him to actually win. And, um, and little re- things can make him lose. And little things can make him lose. That's right. And look, economic inequality, the the striation of our media, the 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 gaudiness and and vulgarity of our culture. Big like words. these things open the door to a real villain. Um, and he puts the whole you know he puts the, um, the American project in jeopardy. It really is. But we're protesting. We're marching. He's the most unpopular president. Uh, if we're already divided as a country as to whether he should already be impeached. We can win the House in 2018. We can hold him accountable. And then we can kick him out in 2020 and get back to business. Uh, and, and we can do that. And, 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 then, and then we can all look back and say, what the fuck just happened? And, and we're going to play Kelly Clarkson since you've been gone. And it's going to be awesome. Just remember, like, I, I like actually... You, when you wake up with a really bad hangover, like, yeah. what the hell happened I, I have last my, you know, I know this is like a crazy time and it's, it's scary and it's horrible, but like... There will be a last day Trump is president, and it's going to be fantastic. Yes. Hi. Uh, hi, I'm Rob. Um, so speaking of looking towards the future, uh, I'm a public high school teacher. Uh, I teach in the South Bronx. Nice. Thank you. And about 60% of my students, maybe a little bit more, um, are either immigrants or have families that immigrated from other countries. Um, And I think that the most difficult day that I've had to teach was the day after the election. Um, Just having not really processed it myself, not having slept very much, um, and having to go in and face students who are 14, 16, 17 years old, um, who knew that something bad had happened, but they weren't sure how bad, and they weren't sure what to do about it. Do you have any advice for helping empower these young people who will either vote in 2018 and definitely in 2020, how to make them feel empowered again? That's really Good tough. Question. Um, look, I would, 
you're a teacher, right? Like I, I would take them on a tour through history, right? And I mean, I've been, I was saying this on the podcast a lot, but it's like everyone's been reading the books about like fascism and how Nazi Germany happened and Hitler and I've been finding myself wanting to read more about the civil rights movement, right? And like that wasn't easy and it took about a decade, it took more than that. And you know, there are a lot of people beaten on that bridge in Selma and a lot of other places. And, um, but I think teaching children today and teaching students today that progress is possible in America and it has been through over the course of two centuries, even when we faced war and depression and really, really, really difficult challenges, that gives them hope that they can do something and let them know that it only happened because people got involved and they paid attention and they, you know, and they studied and they, you know, like I, th I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's very difficult what you're facing, but it's also a great opportunity to let children know that if they are engaged, if they pay attention and if they fight for this, um, then, then they, can, they can make progress happen in this country, that they have the power to do that. Do you need a permission slip to take them to a protest? <laughs> We're talking about story. I mean, there's, there's stories. Forget about history too. There's stories happening all over the country right now that are good news stories, yeah. right? Whether it's these protests or whether it's you know people looking out for other. It's just find the good news out there. I, I, that's why because there's it's very easy when you turn on the news right now to only see bad news uh, because there is a lot of bad news. And I think we have to work harder to find the good news stories out there, find the stories of people protesting, of people helping each other, of people sort of living American values, the, the ones that we believe in. Um, and I think, I think that, that will give inspiration. And maybe take them to a protest. Maybe take them to a protest. On the weekends. I'll on the weekends. I'll work on it. Thanks. I think that's not, I don't think that's like a totally crazy thing. Should we take, uh, okay, two more questions and then I think, yes. Jessica, um, a version of my question was asked earlier, but it was kind of about having an impact outside the bubble, but I'm going to be a little bit more specific. So obviously we're in New York. It's a very liberal um, city. It's a sanctuary city. Most of our representatives are on our side. We you know, protested outside of Schumer's apartment not too long ago, so hopefully he's gotten <laughs> his act together. Um, my, awesome. my, <laughs> my mother is taken to, you know, putting on a fake southern accent and calling red states. <laughs> <laughs> that is innovative. I like that. I've done that. <laughs> my question is, A, is that effective? And B, if it's not, what are our alternatives well, if our people are on our side already? I mean, that really depends on how good the accent is. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so bad. It's not so bad. All right. Well, then it's pretty good. I mean, I think, in, yeah, I, I don't think, I, I don't know that... Is she like cold calling people? How does this work? Yeah, she's like, oh, I'm from 345 Main Street in your town. I, you know, no, way better than what I'm doing right now. But, you know, <laughs> uh, this is how I feel about this issue. But if our representatives are already kind of voting with us, you get those calls to action, call right yeah. now. And it's like, all right, well, I already saw a tweet from my representative. I know they're voting my way. Then what else is right. there right. for I think that, do? I mean, that's amazing that she's that committed. Good for her, seriously. <laughs> But um, I think if she's that committed and has that much time and energy to put into this, that using something like swingleft.org to find your nearest swing state and going to that county and meeting people, or going to that um, pre uh, district and meeting people face-to-face -face is probably a better use of time and more likely to be effective, more likely to be an experience that's rewarding for her, uh, as well as sort of like a chance to move somebody on a vote. That's what I would do. Okay, that's great. Thank you. But I'm impressed. All right, last question. 
Thanks, guys. Hey, my name's Nathan Rubin. Uh, big fan of the pod. Love it. I love your shoes, by the way. Thank you. Really slick. Um, my question's actually pretty similar, but it comes to, you know, our biggest resource constraint is time. Yeah. And when you have organizations like Swing Left, Run for Something, Millennial Politics, Indivisible, these organizations out there, for us working folk who don't really have that much free time, how do we most effectively use our time to resist the Trump administration's agenda? That's a good question. <sighs> yeah, I, mean, I think you have to figure out, like, I don't know, this is sort of a silly answer, but like to me it's always like, when you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing. And if you can kind of routinize what your commitment is to the cause every week or every month, like if you're gonna do two hours of canvassing a month, God bless you, that's amazing. And like figure out what that is and hold yourself to it and that could be your commitment or like 10 bucks a month to the ACLU or 20 bucks to the DNC, like whatever it might be. Because I hear you, keeping up with the news, we, we do this for a living, allegedly, so we haven't got paid, um, but we, <laughs> It's impossible to keep up with the news. Like we, Alex told us things we had never heard. Um, and so I, I hear you and, and like, yeah, you have a job and you have real obligations. But um, I do think if you can figure out like what is that contribution and sticking to it and then becoming a force multiplier and getting two or three friends to do it with you, like that's how you're a force. And you bring that to a state a, race. It's such a good point though, is that Thanks. because we have so much news on so many different issues and there's so many things to freak out about every day, it's like, I need to figure out a way to help all of it and right. to solve all of it. And you can't do that. And you should f pick one issue that you care about, pick one race that you care about, and donate some weekend hours to it, right? Whether it's canvassing, whether it's phone banking, whether it's, you know, uh, I think that, that probably makes more of a difference in the long run. And yeah. it's not always as immediately satisfying because you don't see that we want, we want immediacy. We're impatient, right? And so we want to say, like, I want to tweet and then solve this problem, right? And that just doesn't happen. And so it takes effort and it takes time. But, you know, it, it pays off in the end. And we saw this on both Obama campaigns, right? That these organizers started, like, a year in advance. Yeah, and man. they like, were in random places in Iowa. And like, it was not, yeah, you were there. I, we were 10 of us on the ground in Iowa. Like, it was like Ronnie Cho and like a bunch of us, you know, working out of a gas station. And, you know, by the end of the campaign, Ronnie had organized, you know, it's 75 volunteers making calls for him. I mean, that sort of like scaling um, of impact is so unbelievable if it's a dedicated, committed time. And, and also, like, we don't work, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, there are lots of organizations. It's actually hard for us even to sort out, like, which is the one we should be talking about, which is the best one. And the truth is, it's great that there's all these new things. Like, we, the indiv Indivisible, these chapters popping up, it's exciting, and That's they're cool. great. And if there's one near you, you should go and check it out. If there's a protest, you should go, go give that a shot. I mean, I, I would say the single most important thing we have to do is, to save this country is win the House in 2018. And, if, and if, if you can find a way to help win a House seat somewhere, you can protest and draw attention and, and make these people less popular and make Donald Trump less popular in any way that you can, like, you're helping, and it's yeah. great. It's awesome. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys. Thank you. That's really great. And thank Appreciate you to it. thank you to uh, to Radio Love Fest for having us. Thanks to the Band Theater for having us. Thanks to WNYC. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We're fucking yeah. we're shocked that people like this thing. I wasn't. It's really nice of you to listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Like the, the coolest part about this job is when people tweeted us that they go to protest and stuff. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. And thanks All to right. Alex Wagner and, and Mayor, the Mayor Mayor De Blasio. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you.
you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.